Welcome to the show, everybody. I got a substantive one for you today. I got a fun one for you today. Uh, needless to say, we are on day 1,412 of uh, Joe Rogan Gate, if you can call it that. So we got Trump weighing in on it. We got Charlemagne the God weighing in on it. We're going to get to that. Um, we are Jordan Peterson went after Trump. That's an amazing segment. We'll talk about that. Rumble offers Rogan $100 million. Rand Paul wants Afghans to starve. Russell Brand reacts to being labeled right-wing. Um, we got uh, Starbucks union busting. So today's show is a big one. Is a big one. So anyway, uh, let's go ahead and get started here. And we're going to do that with why I was actually pulled from my, why one of my Rogan episodes was pulled from Spotify. So let's do it. So a couple nights ago, um, I got a text from my buddy, Henry, who watches this show all the time. He watches Rogan all the time. And he told me, what the hell, one of your Rogan episodes was just pulled. And um, he sent me either a tweet or that website, MissingJRE or JREMissing.com. And I saw that it had, it said one of my episodes was pulled and it had the number. The first thing I wanted to do was to make sure that was even accurate. So uh, what Crystal and I did is tried to investigate it because she immediately went to Spotify, typed in Kyle Kalinske, and four episodes came up. And I thought I was on Rogan four times. So I was like, I don't, I don't think anything's even missing because I was on, I think, four times. And so we did a little more digging and found out, uh, no, I actually was on five times and one of the episodes was pulled. We were able to deduce that by looking at YouTube and some other sites, and 
The number of the episode that was pulled, I don't know why, but it stuck out to me because I kind of remember number 1187 for whatever reason. And so I was like, I know I was on number 1187, but you can't pull up 1187 on Spotify, but there's still four episodes on Spotify, which I thought was all the times I was on. Anyway, we were trying to figure out, was I really pulled off? And then when we found out, indeed, I was pulled off, you know, I was astonished by that. I'm like, why was I pulled off? So the very first thing I thought was the whole scandal was about Joe using the N-word. And I was like, did he use the N-word in our episode? I thought, no, absolutely not. But just to double check, to make sure, um, I was sent by Matt Orfala a transcript of the podcast. And what I did was, to make sure, a keyword search in the transcript of the podcast. Let me actually show you that right now. I'll put it up on screen. This is from Podgist or Podgist.com, P-O-D-G-I-S-T.com. And you can see there in the bottom left, I'm typing in N-I-G. And then when I do N-I-G-G, nothing comes up. So to me, that, I mean, that verified, like, no, Rogan didn't use the N-word. And by the way, I, I think I'd remember that if Rogan used the N-word, right? So um, then we were trying to investigate why. I went back and um, listened to a lot of the podcast on one of the other podcasting apps that had it up. And I got like a, a whole bunch of the major topics that we touched on. So I thought I narrowed it down to like three things, probably more like two things as to why we got pulled. The first thought was like, well, there's a whole section where we're railing against uh, social media bans and deplatforming and censorship. And there was a story at the time that was in the news, which talked about police to police being pulled. That was one um, uh, free thought project or something like that was pulled. And there were some anti-war things that were pulled. And so we had a long conversation about that. And in the context of that conversation, I made the point that Alex Jones was just the tip of the spear. You don't have to defend him on the Sandy Hook stuff to understand that he was just the beginning and we were going down a slippery slope. And next thing you know, they're going to ban people for all sorts of reasons. And so I thought, well, maybe it's because I kind of defended Alex Jones to be on these platforms that I was pulled. But then you realize, well, a lot of other people have done that too. And not all those videos were pulled. So I thought it's probably not that. So then we were down to two things. It was Joe Rogan in a conversation about legalizing marijuana where I had pressured Chris Christie at Politicon. Rogan, you can make an argument that he sort of fat shamed Chris Christie because he was like, he attacks other people for their addictions. This guy's addicted to food and he's like a disgusting slob. Okay, so I thought maybe they're saying we got to pull it for that reason because that's harsh. And if anybody digs it up, they might say he's fat shaming or fat phobic or whatever. So they pulled it down for that reason. That was a, that was potentially the case. But then we discovered my section on Saudi Arabia, where I railed against Saudi Arabia, talked about the Jamal Khashoggi thing, talked about how they're doing a literal genocide in Yemen, uh, talked about how they behead people in the public square for witchcraft and sorcery and apostasy and all sorts of things, drug smuggling. And so I was like, I, that seems to me the most likely thing. But then the plot thickened even more. So let me show you uh, what I ended up tweeting. So I said, my 2018 Joe Rogan experience appearance was censored by Spotify. He didn't use any racial slurs in the episode. I railed against Saudi Arabia in it, and Spotify just happened to expand into the Saudi market at the exact time that coincides with the banning. That was the first thing I said. Then 
Crystal had found this article and sent it to me, which I thought was just flat-out proof that this was the case. This just happened with Spotify. Quote, it expanded its paid podcast subscriptions in 33 more markets and enabled podcasts for users in Russia, Egypt, and Saudi Arabia. So, I mean, I, part of me couldn't believe it, but the other part of me was like, they just expanded into Saudi Arabia, and they just pulled down a podcast where I railed against Saudi Arabia. And so that seems really fishy, and it seems like maybe that was the reason that they did it. However, however, somebody who I trust 100% reached out to me and said, no, man, I went back and listened to the entire thing, and there's a portion where you guys are talking about Kanye West, and Joe quotes something. I don't know if he's quoting a lyric of Kanye's. I don't know if he's quoting a rant of Kanye's or whatever. But Joe ends up saying N-I-G-G-A in the podcast. Now, the reason why I thought he didn't say the N-word is because I certainly didn't remember it. And I guess he said it in a way that was in context and we breeze right by it where it didn't even occur to me. I mean, again, I thought I was on four times. Turns out I was on the show five times. So obviously my memory is not that good. But it turns out that he indeed, indeed did say N-I-G-G-A. So I think that's probably the reason why they banned my podcast with him. I do. I think it's probably because he said N-I-G-G-A. I think what they did is they tried to scrub all the episodes where he said it, no matter what the context is. Um, now, there's still a little bit of a weird open question for the other podcast, not for my podcast as much. I think I was wrong to think it was Saudi Arabia. I do think it was a coincidence. It's a crazy coincidence that they expanded into Saudi Arabia uh, and then my podcast where I ripped Saudi Arabia got pulled. It is a wild coincidence, but I do think it's ultimately a coincidence. I think mine was probably N-I-G-G-A, the fact that he said that, as to why it got pulled. But there is still an open question because 113 episodes were pulled the last time I checked, which was like a day or two ago. And he apparently said N-I-G-G-A, any variation of the N-word, 22 times. So there's a discrepancy there. Now, it is possible, this occurred to me yesterday as well, it is possible that the guests also said it, would do the math on that, 113 minus 22, the guests said it that many times, and so they're just trying to scrub all the episodes where that was said. That is possible. I don't know if that's the case. I'll just say I'm agnostic on that. It strikes me like that's a lot of times to say the N-word, no matter the context. So I feel like some episodes were probably pulled where that wasn't in there. Um, but either way, now knowing that he said that, I do think that that was the reason why they pulled my episode with him. And I do think the Saudi Arabia thing, even though it's a wild coincidence, I think it is a coincidence. And probably the nail in the coffin in that theory in my mind, if you're listening to this, you say, no, I still think Saudi Arabia had something to do with it. I probably ripped on Saudi Arabia a bunch of other times in the podcast, too. And I don't think the other episodes where I ripped on Saudi Arabia led to it being pulled down. So ultimately, I think I was wrong in my original interpretation. But you guys can see why I thought that this was the answer. Because when I did the keyword search in uh, the podgist transcript, I didn't see the N-word. And I didn't, certainly didn't remember him saying the N-word. So... There's that. Uh, now, I'm going to increase my vulnerability in this conversation a little further, though, because I still don't think the podcast should be pulled. <laughs> Sorry, I don't. 
Now, if you want to say, bleep the word, okay, I mean, I think that's more reasonable. Maybe they have no way to do it after the fact. They can't, like, bleep it and keep it up as is and find a way to bleep over it. I don't know if anybody has the technology to do that. But even if they don't, it's like, okay, well, pull it down. Then you could bleep the word and then put it back up. Because here's the problem. We now lost, on the outlet Spotify, we now lost every conversation that we had in that podcast. You can't get the full video anywhere. You can get the audio in different places in these random podcasting outlets. But I don't even know if that's the case for all the Joe Rogan episodes. I don't know if all of them are archived somewhere. You can't get the full video anywhere. But now on Spotify in particular, which is where he gets most of his views, you lost a conversation about the drug war and drug cartels in Mexico. You lost a conversation about Saudi Arabia on that outlet. Again, you could get it elsewhere, but where he gets most of his views on Spotify, you can't get that there now. You can't get the conversation that me and Joe had about how the Democratic Party needs to be reformed, and I lay out how I think they need to be reformed. You now can't get the conversation about uh, me ripping Donald Trump and explaining exactly how he's corrupt. You, ironically, can't get the conversation about social media censorship and deplatforming and banning. So you lose all of those things on Spotify where he gets most of his views because a no-no word was uttered in context. So, and now here's the other part of the conversation too, though, because when I came out and did the segment uh, the other day about this, Joe was, there was Brian Stelter of CNN who said that Joe was the one who said, like, okay, take the episodes down. So when I looked at that, I thought, Brian Stelter, I'm not so sure about that source. I'm not sure I trust that source. Uh, But I even brought it up in the last segment, like maybe Joe had something to do with it. Like there's some reporting that Joe had something to do with it. Well, now we know because there was an internal email from the uh, CEO of Spotify. And in that internal email, he says, like, Joe was like, okay, take those down. My response to that is, I disagree with Joe. I really don't think those episodes should have been pulled down. You know, worst case scenario, I can hear you if, if, if you say, just bleep the, bleep the words out. Fine, fair enough. But definitely don't just pull them down and ax them. Because that's 113 episodes where so many other topics were discussed. And virtually every single time he used that word, it was always in context. Even if you say, hey, I don't like it that he used that word. I get that. I understand that 100%. But it was in context. He wasn't saying it like David Duke or Richard Spencer. And that context is incredibly important. And so worst case scenario, you bleep it. Otherwise, you should just leave it up. So let's say there was zero pressure from Spotify. And Joe himself decided, I want you to pull it down. Yes, of course, technically he has the right to do that. It's his podcast. He can do whatever he wants with it. If it was me, I wouldn't do it. And I still don't like the fact that that episode is pulled down on Spotify. I don't. In fact, I hate it. Because, again, the full video is gone. Spotify is is his home. It's where he gets most of his views. And so there's going to be a number of people who won't experience that and otherwise would experience that um, if it was still up there. And I got a message the other day about how, you know, I I literally went back. I was listening to your podcast podcast. and then I went to get something and came back and it was pulled down. So it was like mid-watching it and it was pulled down. So anyway, there you have it. I don't think now, given that we know he said N-I-G-G-A, I don't think that my podcast being pulled was because of that. Um, I still don't know if all 113 podcasts were pulled specifically just because of that word. 
because he said it 22 times, 113 episodes were pulled down. It's possible the guest said it, which is why it has to be pulled down. I just don't know. But either way, and I know this might put me in the minority right now. I know it's not a popular thing to say right now. I still wouldn't have pulled it. Worst case scenario, I would have bleeped it. Um, but you lose all these other conversations on Spotify, the home of where his podcast is, because he said a no-no word, and there was a massive public pressure camping. Either way, it doesn't make me happy. And, you know, I would tell Joe, I wouldn't hide it. I'd tell Joe to his face, like, you shouldn't have agreed to have them pulled, or you shouldn't have asked to have them pulled, because I do think that goes too far. And maybe that makes me an asshole. Maybe some people will hear this and say I'm a piece of shit, bigot, whatever. But I really don't think that's a fair characterization. Um, Put yourself in my shoes or any of the shoes of the people who were on the podcast and had all these had a long-ranging three-hour conversation about all these different topics. Now, the whole thing has to go because one no-no word was uttered in context. I think that's, that goes way too far. Okay. All right, let's move on. Let's go to Donald Trump. We're gonna, unfortunately, we're going to be stuck on this Rogan topic forever. Yes, the topic of Joe Rogan will not go away. It has been dominating the news for a very long time now. Um, And our former president has weighed in. So let me go ahead and show you his take here. Statement by Donald J. Trump, 45th president of the United States. Joe Rogan is an interesting and popular guy, but he's got to stop apologizing to the fake news and radical left maniacs and lunatics. How many ways can you say you're sorry? Joe, just go about what you do so well and don't let them make you look weak and frightened. That's not you, and it never will be. So that's Trump's take on the matter. Um, I have a somewhat controversial reaction to this. Trump is half right. So let me explain what I mean by that. Joe, by apologizing, even the first time, and you could call it wasn't a full apology, it was like a semi-apology, right, for the you know, vaccine misinformation stuff. By doing that, it didn't satiate everybody who was a critic of Joe. He was operating under the assumption, look, I'm acting in good faith. I assume all my critics are acting in good faith. So if I'm open and honest and I say this, then, you know, everybody will get along and we can all, all hold hands and sing kumbaya. It's like caricature, but that's sort of the gist of it. If I'm operating in good faith, I think my critics are operating in good faith. I'll let them know and then we'll be okay. The opposite happened. They saw the semi-apology and they smelled blood in the water and they were like, oh, we got this dude. Let's go in for the kill. Let's go for the jugular. So the sharks did what sharks do, and then they kept digging. And by the way, they're going to keep doing this. In fact, I see them continuing to do this. I saw a number of headlines since then. Here's Joe Rogan in a 2006 comedy bit making fun of somebody who's mentally handicapped. Here's Joe Rogan saying something sexist about Angelina Jolie or whatever. All these new headlines. Oh, my God, he said this, he said this. Because as soon as he, uh, you know, showed some vulnerability, they were like, oh, well, then we can get him to totally buckle and probably force Spotify sufficiently enough to get them to pull Joe, especially if, you know, some big name artists like Taylor Swift or Drake or whoever decides to pull out of Spotify because of Rogan or whatever, you know. So it is sort of true that when you showed the vulnerability, they come in for the kill and they crush you. They don't, like, nobody accepts an apology anymore for, like, anything. It doesn't matter how open and honest and, and fair you are. It's just like you were, you once did a bad thing, or I think you were a bad person, and so you are forever tarred with that no matter what happens moving forward. That just seems to be the way it works. So in one sense, 
I mean, Trump is kind of right. Trump is right. But now let me give the flip side argument, which I think is also true. The flip side argument is, I think, Joe, he genuinely felt bad that there are people out there who don't know him and they saw this compilation of him saying the N-word 22 times and Joe's watching that thing. Number one, this looks terrible because it does look terrible to anybody. Number two, people who don't know me have no idea what the context is. So it sounds like I'm just calling people the N-word in a vicious way and I'm equivalent to David Duke or Richard Spencer and I hate black people. Like, that's what it sounds like. So I think Joe genuinely felt bad that there were people who don't know him who were offended and hurt by him using that language. And so Joe, being an honest guy, is like, look, I want to sort of set the record straight and say what I feel bad for and and also give the context. And he did exactly that. He went out there and he said what he felt bad for and he gave the context. Now, some people might say even with the context, I don't accept that. Okay, fair enough. But the context definitely makes clear he's not David Duke, and he's not some, you know, hardcore Bull Connor racist like that compilation makes him look like. So I think from Joe's perspective, he was just being true to himself. And so the first apology, he basically said, you guys say I'm doing misinformation. Well, mainstream media did a lot of misinformation, and this pandemic has been evolving, and some things that we thought were fake, turned out to be true, and so I'm on this ride just like everybody else, but to say I'm the purveyor of misinformation, I think that's a little misleading. We're all trying our best out here. He said that, and then he also, you know, said, look, I'll try to do better. I'll try to study more for the podcast where I have people on with controversial opinions, and I'll try to balance it out um, with pro-vaccine people when I have on anti-vaccine people, and I'm okay with the banners that are like, you know, a link to more official COVID information. I'm fine with that. So, yeah. That was the first apology. I think he was doing what he felt was the right thing to do and being true to himself. And then even with the second apology, I think he was doing what he felt was the right thing to do and he was being true to himself. And I think that if he didn't do both apologies, I think he'd have trouble sleeping at night because he wanted to clear the record and he wanted to clear his name. But having said that, it is also true that by doing that, now everybody's a critic. And so... There are people who will just never accept the apology, and now they want to go in for the kill more. That's a lot of people. And then there are other people who say, look, you tactically and strategically fucked up because now you're making people think you did something wrong when really in context you didn't feel like you were doing anything wrong. And so this weakness is just going to get you crushed, and you have to stand up and actually defend yourself in a way. Because that, I mean, that's what Trump always used to do. And Trump did it to a fault. Like, Trump literally, even when Trump was dead wrong, he would never apologize. But the fact that he puffed his chest out and he, you know, was a bull in a china shop, it doesn't silence the critics, but it makes them, um, it makes them appear like they're playing a losing hand. Because if every time you just swat aside whatever the complaint is and you're like, fuck off, then, you know, it does sort of go away. It does sort of go away in due time and probably quicker than if you, you know, feed into it and grant le- legitimacy and credibility to it. So I think what Trump is saying here is half right from a strategic perspective. Um, it would have it been much different if he didn't apologize or if he defended himself a little bit more. Um, but because Joe, I think, was just being true to himself and honest to himself and he genuinely felt bad for people who were offended and hurt, 
I think he just followed his heart and did the thing that he felt like he had to do and that he should do. But, yeah, you guys know, at the end of the day, I would say my biggest disagreement with Rogan in this whole thing is not not the apologies because he was just being true to himself and and speaking his mind. I think uh, the fact that 113 episodes are now pulled and uh, one of them is mine, and granted, we learned now that he indeed did say N-I-G-G-A in my podcast with him. He was quoting something from Kanye and read it. I still think, worst case scenario, you just bleep out the word and put the thing back up on Spotify. But they actually pulled it down, and it's gone for good now. So I think that was the big mistake. I mean, me, even going to Spotify originally was maybe, that was the original sin, was like, let me be part of Spotify where they're paying me a lot of money because now, like it or not, he becomes like the face of the entire organization. And so now he doesn't just have to answer for himself. He has to answer for an entire company, for the CEO, for the employees who work there, um, and now stuff he says affects, you know, the market value of the company. When he was on YouTube, even though you're not perfectly independent at YouTube, you are more independent at YouTube because he didn't have a contract with, you know, uh, YouTube management. He didn't know YouTube management. He didn't talk to YouTube management. He was just a guy on the platform like anybody else. So YouTube didn't necessarily have to answer much for what he did because there was that buffer between them. So maybe the original sin was going to Spotify in the first place. I don't like the fact that the episodes were pulled down. Um, but there you have it. Donald Trump, who always swaps aside uh, scandals and he's a bull in the China shop, for better or worse, you know, sometimes he's dead wrong when he does it, but he's telling Joe, hey man, they sense weakness and that's going to embolden them. It's not going to make them accept your apology and be, you know, more fair-minded. That's his take. Uh, I, I sort of, I gave you both sides of it and you guys determined for yourself what the best path forward was. Okay. Okay. So Rumble, which is in a like a, a YouTube type website that propped up in response to, uh, you know, a lot of questions around free speech in YouTube. They have now gotten involved in this Rogan scandal and put an offer out there on the table. So take a look at this. Hey, Joe Rogan, this is the tweet part. Hey, Joe Rogan, we are ready to fight alongside you. See the note from our CEO, Chris Pavlovsky. Uh, Joe Rogan, the Joe Rogan Experience. Dear Joe, we stand with you, your guests, and your legion of fans in desire for real conversation. So we'd like to offer you 100 million reasons to make the world a better place. How about you bring all your shows to Rumble, both old and new, with no censorship for 100 million bucks over four years? This is our chance to save the world. And yes, this is totally legit. Sincerely, Chris Pavlovsky. Okay, so there's a few things to say in response to this. Um, I mean, he would, he'd be in breach of contract if he did that. He's got this contract with Spotify. Um, so I don't really think it's possible for him to do this. That's one thing. Another thing is that I don't think that's nearly as much money as uh, Spotify paid him. I think ultimately they ended up paying him more than that. So this is, for Rogan, this is not not enough. It sounds insane to say, but $100 million is a ridiculous amount of money. But it honestly is less than what the Spotify deal ultimately came to. Um, So there's that aspect of it as well. And then the other thing is, 
they're framing it as like, look, we'll, we're not going to censor. We're going we're gonna to protect you. But we now see the, the letter from the CEO to employees within Spotify. And at least according to the CEO, Joe either was willingly like, okay, go ahead and take some of the episodes down with the N-word in it, um, or he's the one who asked to do it. So if he's the one who sort of volunteered that, then you saying, like, we'll protect your free speech and you can keep those up, that's not going to appeal to him because he sort of wants them down. So I, I don't think this is going to land. I think they're just trying to generate press for themselves. They know he's going to say no. But Rumble, Rumble's interesting because a lot of these, there's a lot of these alternative sites that pop up when the social media censorship and, uh, you know, the the filtration of content has gone overboard. You have these other sites that pop up. So there was Steemit tried to do it. I think they were crypto-based YouTube-type alternative. I don't know if they're still active. I know that for Twitter, there was Gab that popped up. But there's this thing that ends up happening, which is since YouTube and Twitter and, like, Facebook, these are still the main ones, um, the, the base of these new social media sites genuinely ends up just being for the people who only have an issue uh, with the censorship. And so most of the time, keep it real, they end up being pretty right wing. In the case of Gab, it literally became like neo-Nazi central. <laughs> it was like, it wasn't like, even people who might be against the censorship, they didn't find it a compelling enough reason if they personally weren't censored to leave Twitter, you know, or to leave YouTube. And so Gab was just this right-wing outlet branding themselves as we're all about free speech. And people say, oh, really? You're about free speech? And they go there and test the limits. And they say all sorts of stuff that is genuinely bigoted and racist and over-the-top and crazy. And then that, in turn, turns off people who are normies from going over there. Now, Rumble, I think it's a little different. They've made some effort to, to not be exclusively a right outlet. But still, overwhelmingly, I, I think the content skews right-leaning. But Joe... Joe would be crazy to take a deal with anybody, given what's already happened with Spotify. Um, I, I mean, I think he would have been better off staying independent the entire time, not taking the money and going to Spotify, because now that he's at Spotify, he sort of represents Spotify, whether he likes it or not. He's the face of the company, and so he's responsible for the CEO and the employees and the, the market value and all that stuff. And I don't think that's anything he ever really wanted or asked for. He just saw that, if, oh, if I'm exclusive with them, I get all this money, and so he went down that path, but... Uh, there are obviously negative consequences associated with that, as you see now. And so, uh, again, ultimately, I think Rumble's just trying to make a name for themselves here and, and get some press. Well, congratulations, you did get press, at least on this show. Um, I don't doubt that they're more committed to, to free speech than maybe some of the other platforms, but it's also undeniably the case that they skew right. They might say, I don't, hey, I don't want to do that, but they definitely ultimately do do that. They're not nearly as bad as, like, Gab, which is literally just Nazi Central at this point. Um, but... Yeah, these companies, uh, honestly, the real answer, the real answer, as all you guys know, and I've been arguing this for a long time, is that it's not gonna, this isn't going to be solved through, uh, you know, more competition. It's just not. What we have now is Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, maybe some of the other social media outlets. They're the public square. That's the new public square. And so they should be regulated like they're public utilities. And you expand uh, First Amendment free speech protections, it doesn't mean you can get away with direct threats of violence. It doesn't mean you can get away with targeted harassment. It doesn't mean you can get away with doxing people or libel or slander or whatever. You can't do that. Um, 
But virtually everything else would be, you know, you have a right to keep it up. So I think that's the solution. But having said that, in this instance, that solution wouldn't have made a difference because if Joe himself did say, hey, I see the massive backlash, I want it to end, let's just pull down those episodes, then he has a right to do that no matter what, even if I don't like it, and I don't like it. Because again, just use my podcast as an example, um, number 1187, apparently there was a conversation about Kanye, Joe quoted something Kanye said, uh, and it included N-I-G-G-A in it, and um, as a result of that, now the entire podcast is off of Spotify, which means on Spotify, we've now lost the conversation that we had about Saudi Arabia's crimes. We've now lost the conversation we had about uh, legalizing drugs and the drug war and the drug cartels. We've lost talking about reforming the Democratic Party, and we lost talking about Donald Trump's corruption. We lost talking about, um, you know, Bernie Sanders' policies and how I support them. And so it's way, I think you're losing way too much. Worst case scenario I could see is just bleep out the word. If, if everybody is insistent, we have to do something, okay, just bleep out that word. But Even Joe apparently wanted to go above and beyond that. So anyway, Rumble, you got what you wanted. (laughs) You know, a lot of, I see a lot of articles on this. Some other people covered it. I'm covering it. Um, But I think everybody knows this is pretty much a dead end uh, offer. I think they mean it, but it's also a dead end offer. Joe's not going to take it. He'd be crazy to take it. In fact, I'm sure if he could go back in time, he wouldn't go to Spotify in the first place. All right, next. So we got some breaking news yesterday that I want to share with you guys. It's about Starbucks. Now, Starbucks workers have been unionizing all around the country, and it's absolutely phenomenal. I I wore the other week on Crystal Kion, friends, I wore my uh, Starbucks union shirt. This brings a smile to my face to see more people joining unions, to see – For the first time in a long time, a lot of unions are going on the offense instead of playing defense. They've been playing defense for decades. That's now changing. Well, guess what? Management at Starbucks is fighting back, and they're doing it in ways that are illegal. So take a look at this. This is in Yahoo News. Starbucks has fired several employees who are leading an effort to unionize a Memphis, Tennessee store. The Seattle coffee giant said Tuesday that the employees violated company policy by reopening a store after closing time and inviting non-employees to come inside and move throughout the store, including behind the counter and in in back rooms. The employees used the store to do an interview with a local television station about their unionizing effort. So that's why they were fired. But the employees who were fired say Starbucks was retaliating against them for their unionization efforts. They say they plan to file a complaint with the National Labor Relations Board. By the way, since this article has come out, they have done that. Quote, most of these partners had never had a write-up or anything, said Beto Sanchez, 25, one of the workers who was fired. The dispute comes as growing numbers of Starbucks stores across the country seek to unionize. Since December, when a store in Buffalo, New York, became the first Starbucks location to form a union in decades, 66 stores in 20 states have filed petitions with the Labor Board to hold union elections, according to Workers United, which is organizing Starbucks workers. Starbucks opposes unionization, saying the company functions best when it can work directly with its employees. But the company said Tuesday, Tuesday's firings were not related to the unionization effort but to store safety and security. I think that is BS. And you know who else thinks that? Somebody who is a manager there and uh, released a video on this. Credit to More Perfect Union for uh, posting this video. I want to show you what one of the managers said. Take a look. My name is Jessica Lee. I'm a 
name is Amy Holden, and I am the former store manager of the Starbucks Poplar and Highland location where many union partners were terminated today. I lived with the company for nine and a half years, so I feel like I have a pretty good understanding of what Starbucks policies and procedures are. We have a process at Starbucks when it comes to corrective actions and terminating partners. We do not move straight to termination for anything that is not considered egregious, like stealing and harassment and those kinds of things. Those things we would move towards corrective action to as long as partner resources supported it. The majority of a violation, a policy violation, would move to some level of corrective action where we would assume positive intent and help that partner correct their action rather than moving straight to termination. It's very rare that we move straight to termination for some sort of policy violation. These partners were terminated for policies like going behind the line when they were off the clock. It's something that's done across the company and especially in the Memphis area. They went behind the line for various reasons, but if we terminated everybody that did that, we would not have a staff. Many of those partners have done those things directly in front of the district manager and the new store manager, and they've never been coached on it before. Nothing was ever said about it. So they were terminated for going behind the line, which is a violation of policy. They should not be doing that. But it's not something that we would terminate a partner for, especially for the first time of them doing it. We would want to have a conversation with them and make sure they were aware of the policy. Some of the partners were terminated for going in the back room when they were off the clock which is not a Starbucks policy. Those partners have a right to go into the back room to access the Starbucks system so that they're able to get their schedules, request time off, and be able to access the phone numbers that they may need, like the business ethics number or even our district manager's number or another partner's number. They need to get a schedule covered. They also are allowed to use that computer to access their paycheck stuff. And there's nothing in the Starbucks policies and guidelines that say they cannot be in the back room to do those things when they're off the clock. They're also allowed to go in the back room, say they left their apron or they left their hat or they left their water bottle, they're able to go in the back room to get those things when they're off the clock. There is no policy that says that they cannot do that. They were also terminated for letting in customers after the store was closed. The store technically does not close till 8 p.m. They closed the store down that day at 6 p.m. The times were not posted on the internet, the times were not updated in the app, the times were not updated with the customers, and most of the partners had no idea that the store was closing early. The store closed at 6 p.m. instead of 8 p.m., so some of the partners came up there to get their tips and various things that they wanted to do, get a drink and other things, and they were terminated for coming up there and being in the building when the store closed two hours early, and they had no idea about it. By the way, my bad. That was a little fast. It was on 1.25 times speed. Um, but, yeah, there you have it. This is clearly they're looking for any reason at all to fire these people because they don't want the unionization effort to succeed there. That's the bottom line. That's the bottom line. And there's been a number of stories like this coming out. We know what happened in Bessemer, Alabama with Amazon, where they literally just cheated to defeat the unionization effort. That's what they did. And now the National Labor Relations Board has decided, oh, they get to have another election because you guys cheated in the last election. And by the way, just to be clear, that is one of the main differences between Democratic presidents and Republican presidents is just the fact that Democratic presidents put not anti-worker people on the National Labor Relations Board. When Republicans are, when a Republican is president, they stack that National Labor, Labor Relations Board with right-wingers who just side every time with management whenever there's a dispute. Democrats, to their credit, don't do that. And it's a real difference between Democrats and Republicans. So um, that is one of the areas where there's a real difference and there is not an equivalence that, that you can make, even though in a thousand area, other areas there is an equivalence. But this is exactly what they're doing, guys. This is exactly what they're doing. They are trying to defeat the unionization effort by any means necessary. And bottom line is they got caught red-handed. So a dispute was filed. Let's see what happens with that dispute. But in a world that made sense, I mean, those people would be hired back instantly and maybe paid something for the trouble that they went through. So solidarity with these workers. 
I hope it succeeds. Solidarity with all the Starbucks union people. Uh, whenever there are updates in this story, we'll try to cover it so that people know what's going on. But, I mean, this is class war. This is, uh, you know, the management class, the owner class doing anything and everything to try to prevent their workers from making better wages, having better benefits, you know, getting paid time off and things of that nature. This is what this country needs more of. It needs more unionization effort. We need the PRO Act to get passed. The PRO Act, by the way, is a pro-union piece of legislation, and it would have more of an impact on workers and wages and their rights than even passing the $15 minimum wage. It would. It would have, you'd have overall more positive outcomes from that than the $15 minimum wage. So we need the PRO Act. The PRO Act would be wonderful if that piece of legislation got through. We see the, the rising income and wealth inequality in this country. It's totally out of whack. It's worse than the Gilded Age. And finally, some people are taking direct action to try to fight back and change that and make a decent wage. And I'm with them 100%. Okay. So Rand Paul appeared on the show Rising. Um, by the way, I'm not sure he would do that if it was Crystal and Sager who were still over there. Not sure. But anyway, Ryan Grimm sometimes does a very good job. And um, he asked Rand Paul a direct question about what's currently going on in Afghanistan. And listen to Rand Paul's answer. Then I'm going to give you some brutal facts. On, on Afghanistan, uh, you, you said you don't want the Biden administration offering more aid to Afghanistan, but at the same time, the administration is holding on to $7 billion in, in assets that belong to the Afghan government and not releasing them back to the cent central bank as they, as they were before. Uh, do you think that the Biden administration ought to continue holding on to the Afghan assets or ought to release it back to the Afghan government? It's probably hard for me to imagine that something we're holding is actually an Afghan asset. We were giving them $50 billion a year. I would think the $7 billion is stuff they owe us. But it also wasn't – It's for a government. this is a government that took over in a military junta. It's not a legitimate elected government. No way in the world would I give them that money. And the thing is, is we've spent billions and billions, if not trillions there, and uh, I think it's a big mistake. And to reward people, look, the – as much as I was for leaving the Taliban agreement, they broke every bit of the agreement. They said they wouldn't advance and they wouldn't take cities until we had gone, and they did anyway. So I think they'd broken every agreement we had, and uh, I would uh, put that money back in the Treasury. We don't have it to give anyway. I mean, it's, you know, the thing is, is all it is is more borrowed money. So I, I wouldn't give it to them. So Rand Paul's take is no don't release the money that already belongs to Afghanistan back to Afghanistan. Um, let me show you what the impact of that would be. Take a look at this. This is from uh, Truthout, but it's also been reported in a number of places. One million Afghan children may die from starvation over the next several months, according to the United Nations, Nearly 23 million Afghans are facing crisis levels of hunger 
and 8.7 million are on the brink of starvation. This mass hunger has rendered millions of Afghans on the verge of death, according to UN Secretary General Antonio uh, Guterres. Alongside looming mass starvation, Afghans face below freezing temperatures, severe shortages of life-saving medical supplies, and extreme poverty, making conditions in Afghanistan among the gravest of human rights crises on Earth. This is not a natural disaster, nor is it the result of conflict internal to Afghanistan. This is, this is a human-made humanitarian catastrophe, United States-made specifically. The U.S.-allied Afghan government, most recently under the rule of Ashraf Ghani, was heavily dependent on foreign aid. Following the Taliban takeover in mid-August 2021, the Biden administration and the U.N. Security Council instituted devastating sanctions, sharply reducing foreign aid. The Biden administration froze $9.7 billion worth of Afghanistan's foreign currency reserves, roughly equivalent to 40% of the country's gross domestic product. $9.5 billion that is their own money. Now, they've given them a drip, 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 a couple hundred million here and there to try to stave off aspects of the starvation, but clearly it is not enough. Now, Rand Paul's like, well, that's our money anyway because we it was foreign aid and we don't even have the money. Uh, if you invade a country, by the way, Afghanistan did not attack us. They did not attack us. Osama bin Laden attacked us on 9-11. For a little while, he was in Afghanistan and the Taliban was nominally protecting him. And then he was, when he was killed, he was in Pakistan, by the way. But we invaded a country that didn't attack us. Uh, we occupied it for 20 years. There was a lot of death, a lot of destruction. And yeah, you think if you're going to do that, which you shouldn't do in the first place, at the very least, you can have a little bit of foreign aid to make sure that the people there don't starve. Like you destroy a country and then in some minor ways you offset the destruction with some money. And he, Rand Paul looks at even that and he's like, that's crazy. We shouldn't do that. We, this, I mean, we don't even have the money and, and this is really our money. And so it would be a bad idea to give to him. Okay, well, there are consequences to that, Rand. And the consequences are worse than the war itself. That is a fact. If millions of people are starving or on the brink of starvation and they're filling up the hospitals and the country's devastated and everybody's living in extreme poverty and degradation, and we have the ability to do something about that simply by giving them back their own money, and you say no, that makes you a war criminal. That makes you a war criminal equal to or worse than the people who ran rightly rich when they were for the Iraq War and the Afghanistan War. See, like the libertarian perspective is like, it, it's a principled non-interventionist stance. Okay, credit words, do I agree with that? That's a good position. But then what, as long as, you're not go, as long as it's not at the barrel of a gun, then you're okay with even worse death and devastation? Because that's what you're saying here. That's what you're saying. Sometimes millions of people are going to starve. What are you going to do? Is that really your position? That's really your position. And make no mistake about it. The reason why Biden is not releasing all of the money is very simply because he thinks it will give the Republicans an optics victory. Because then the Republicans will go out there and say, why did Joe Biden fund the Taliban to the tune of $9 billion? He gave the Taliban billions. Pro-Taliban Joe. That's exactly what the Republicans would do. And it would be a lie. It would be a lie. Because the point of that money is to ease the, the on-the-ground circumstances for civilians and women and children in Afghanistan. That's what the point would be. And by the way, you're crazy if you think, no, if you release that $9 billion, the Taliban will sit on it the entire time and you'd still have the same number of people starving. Absolutely not. 
In fact, there's a long history. What the Taliban does, and look, it's a trick, but it's a trick that works because there's also material benefit in doing the trick. Whenever they were in control of a region, in many instances, they would treat the people, give them more material well-being than the corrupt Western-aligned governments. Now, in the big cities, it's a different story. In the big cities, there were more social freedoms, and, and they did better off. But in a lot of the rural areas, that's not the case. And a lot of the people in those rural areas had more of an alliance with and an allegiance to the Taliban than they did the disconnected, corrupt, Western-aligned governments. Look, guys, this is just a fact. You can be triggered by it if you want. But this is geopolitics. This is what went down. This is the history of it. So, no, they wouldn't just sit on the money. I'm sure they would... They would be okay. They would look after themselves, no doubt. There would be, you know, uh, a disconnect in terms of the ruling class would do much better, just like the ruling class in every country does much better. I'm sure they'd rig it to one extent or another, but they, it absolutely would fix some of the hunger, death, devastation. It would stop the country from absolutely imploding. It would stop the refugee crisis, which is already underway right now. But they don't want to do it. Biden doesn't want to do it because he doesn't want to give the Republicans an optics victory. And Rand Paul doesn't want to do it because something, something, uh, we're broke, we need the money. And uh, Do we need the money more than them? Do we need the money that is literally theirs more than them? Even if we did, that's not a reason to keep it because of their money. But we don't. Millions of people starving. It just shows you how corrupt and disconnected and out of touch and vicious they could be in Washington, D.C. Because, again... The impact of this is quite literally worse than the war itself. Literally. And nobody cares. Nobody cares. And you feel so far removed from the situation that it's like, whatever, what are you going to do? Got some poor Afghan children and women and civilians starving. Eh. Shouldn't have had your country taken over by the Taliban. And, And I don't... This idea of like, well... We, could, we would never release that because we wouldn't dare support an authoritarian government like that. 73% of the world's dictatorships are funded by the U.S. 73% are armed by the U.S. So clearly it's not a principled stance against that. It's just not. They don't care about the civilians because the civilians are Afghanis. So there you have it. Totally unacceptable and... Um, even the nominally anti-war libertarian Rand Paul is like, I said I was anti-war. I didn't say I was anti-starvation. Let me do one more, and then we'll take a break. Jordan Peterson appeared on a podcast. Um, the guy who hosts the podcast, he's the he runs the YouTube channel Valuetainment. I believe the name is, and I think it's called the PBD Podcast. Uh, You can see in the background when he's talking, you can see the sign that says the name of the podcast. I think it's PBD Podcast. But anyway, so Jordan Peterson was on this podcast, and surprisingly, out of nowhere, he sort of goes in on Donald Trump. He decimates Donald Trump, particularly the, you know, January 6th stuff, the Stop the Steal stuff. Um, Let's take a look, and then I'll react. You know, one of the, we talked about Trump earlier. Here's my dilemma with Trump, one of many. Um, he's beating the election was stolen drum pretty damn hard. The election was stolen narrative 
I think it's weak for a variety of reasons. The first is it's pretty whiny. Like, why didn't you win with 5% margin then? So how do you know this isn't your fault? And you think the Republicans aren't gerrymandering congressional districts? Because they are. And so it's not obvious that even if it is the case that there is substantive election fraud, that it's all from one side. And so there's that. And then you sure that's the message you want to be sending people, that they shouldn't have faith in their most fundamental institution? You might be right, but, but it's in your interest for that to be true. And so that's a moral hazard. And then, well, what happens when you retake the House? Because that's what's going to happen. I think the Democrats are going to get stomped in the, in the upcoming election. Are those elections somehow valid, but yours wasn't? And so, why magically, when the Republicans get elected, that's honest, but when they don't, it's not? And so doesn't that take the wind out of your story? It's like, well, it was stolen. Well, you have the House and the Senate. How do you come for that? So that, to me, that, that's going to weaken that narrative. Trump is capitalizing on anger. He's using the election issue as a means to an end. And he may believe it, but it doesn't matter because it's a weak story. R.I.P. to Jordan Peterson's Menchies. Because I'm sure there's going to be a bunch of Trump stands in there that are pissed off. I'm sure of it. Because he does have, I mean, he has a somewhat ideological, ideologically diverse following, but I think he has a lot of people, right-wing people, Trump people who like him. may even be the bulk of his followers, and um, they ain't going to like that dog. They are not going to like that one bit. Uh, so he makes a lot of good points. Keep it real. First of all, when he says Trump is whiny, yeah. Now, in, pre- in previous elections, so in like 2016, yeah, he was whiny also back then. But the whininess was not just limited to me, 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 me. The whininess was not just like, I'm treated so unfairly by everybody like Megyn Kelly and, and fake news media is so fake. It wasn't just that. It was also the politician tap dance of being whiny on behalf of the people, which is, you know, Trump was like the only Republican to be like, I'm not going to cut Social Security. I'm not going to cut Medicare. Um, the forgotten men and women will never be forgotten again. And, you know, the elites look down on you. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to make sure your job is not outsourced. So he was like whiny, but there was also a whininess uh, against, quote unquote, the man, which is ironic because, you know, he's an elitist and, and he's a billionaire and he's part of that class. But I think a lot of people thought of him as like sort of a class traitor to one extent or another. So he was certainly rejected by like Hollywood and, and, many aspects of the media, bar Fox News, where most of them supported him. But, like, the whininess was, uh, it wasn't just limited to, like, me, 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 me. Well, in 2020, it kind of was. And now that we're past 2020, and this guy does rallies, and, like, everything he talks about is how, you know, the election was stolen, and it was rigged, and it was unfair, and it's become so personal and so cultish that you're not expanding the tent at all. And, in fact, if anything you're losing some people who may have been in the tent. That's what's happening. And so he calls them whiny. That's correct. He's whiny. This narrative is whiny. Uh, he also fundamentally says at one point there, look, um, if you didn't win, maybe that's your fault. Win by more. You say, oh, you know, 
maybe there was 1% separating the election, uh, so maybe there's enough fuckery where that could make the difference, but you should have just won by more. And then you wouldn't have to worry about this. You can overcome any of the biases against you. And by the way, that's exactly what Trump did in the 2016 primary. He overwhelmed them. He won by so much that he was undeniable. And Biden's a zombie. You couldn't beat that guy by more? You couldn't beat him. And he didn't even beat him. <laughs> Popular vote electoral college, he didn't beat him at all. But like, Jordan Peterson's point is you should have not only won the electoral college by a lot, you also should have won the popular vote by a lot. So maybe that's your fault. Then he accurately points out Republicans are gerrymandering. So you want to talk about, oh, it's unfair, everything's rigged. Well, it's not. There were 60 court cases and almost every, more than 60 actually, and Trump lost almost every single one of them. They had the Arizona audit. Trump lost by more votes than we thought he lost by on election day. Uh, so you're whining about all, oh, they're rigging it. It's like, well, Republicans gerrymander all the time, all the time. You have nothing to say about that. So when it's like cheating on behalf of your team, you're like, cool. When it's not, you're like, me. And he says that when you win, it's always fair. But when you lose, it's always rigged. Hmm. Isn't that mighty convenient? So credit where credit's due. He's 100% right in this stuff. However, I'm not going to get through a whole Jordan Peterson segment without some degree of criticism. So this is the point where, this is directly after you saw what he just said here in the podcast. Uh, now he's going to drive his point directly into a ditch. And it's worse than that. Because I also think, and I've talked to lots of Republicans about this, is that the best story you've got? You've got tradition on your side. You've got the truth as an adventure on your side. You've got belief in truth on your side. That's been abandoned by the radical left. You've got belief in science on your side. You've got responsibility on your side. You've got the fundamental purpose of higher education on your side. You can't conjure up a better story for Americans than the election was stolen with all that on your side? That's just not very impressive. Let's go through that point by point. You've got tradition on your side. Okay, fair enough. I mean, the Republican Party is, like when you look at the textbook definitions of like conservatism, a lot of that has to do with maintaining tradition and order, and like keeping things relatively similar to how they are right now like maintain our way of life type stuff. So sure, you got it. Republicans have tradition on their side. On, on the Democratic side or the left side, it is more about progress and change and let's bring in something new and better. So fair enough, you guys do have tradition on your side, granted. Then he says you have truth as an adventure on your side. That's like a, that's a very, that's a Jordan Petersonism right there because he's all about narratives and stories and like be the hero in the story. And so I think that's what he means that like they, somehow embrace the storytelling stuff more about, I don't know, uh, personal responsibility or something? I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know exactly what he's trying to say there, but truth is an adventure sounds to me like they center stories more. I don't know if that's true, but yes, on the left, I prefer my candidates to talk more about macro issues, look at the big picture, look at the data, and have a fundamental moral analysis. I don't want to get bogged down in anecdotes and stories. So you know what? I'll give it to them. Then he says you have belief in truth on your side. The Republicans have belief in truth on their side. No, they don't. No, they don't. Belief in truth? I mean, I could sit here and go through a thousand different issues where the Republicans are just wrong. They're just wrong. Take the economy, for example. 
Uh, every single time we do Reaganomics, trickle-down economics, so tax cuts for the wealthy and deregulation, every single time, you have a boom-bust cycle. And it, you always have a crash that accompanies that because when you remove the regulations, you're really removing the referees that keep the game fair. And turns out the people on Wall Street are not the smartest guys in the room. They're the greediest guys in the room. And they can drive the economy into a ditch. See 2008. Now, that wasn't just Republicans. George W. Bush played a big role in that. But so did Bill Clinton, who did the graham leach Act, which repealed Glass-Steagall. But this idea, like, that economic approach doesn't work. By the way, they come out and say, oh, it's not going to add to the deficit. Don't worry. And then every single time, it adds massively to the deficit when you cut taxes for the wealthy. They say, oh, the economy is going to take off so much that even though you have a lower tax rate, the revenue will actually be more. Turns out, when you crunch the numbers, that is not true. It's not even close to true. So that's just one example. Belief in truth on the side of the party that started the Iraq war, which we know as a matter of fact was based on things that are not true, and they push that at the top of their lungs. Belief in truth for the party that wants to cut the social safety net as they pretend, like this will help at the bottom of the economic ladder. That's not true at all. It hurts them. We have the data. We see the numbers. Medicare, Social Security, these programs absolutely helped poor people and working class people. There's no doubt about it. Somehow the Republicans believe in truth. Come on. There was a, I don't remember the number, but the lies that Trump told, it was in the thousands. There were literally, in fact, here, I'm going to try to look it up as I'm talking to you guys right now. How many lies did Trump tell? Let's see. 30,573 over four years. Now, look, I'll be extra kind to Jordan Peterson. I'll be extra kind to all the right-wingers out there. You ready? Um, Washington Post did this article. Now, I don't know who the Washington Post fact-checkers are. Let's assume they're wrong. In fact, let's cut it in half. Let's say the old, you know, 15,000 of these so-called lies are missing a massive amount of context and it's misleading. Fair. Fair enough. I mean, I don't know if it's fair, but I'll be extra kind and give it to you. So he told 15,573 lies. Let's just make, call it an even 15,000 lies over four years. That's the party that believes in truth? Come on, dog. Don't be blinded by partisanship. Don't do it. Don't do it. Because you don't see. I don't do the, the opposite of this. I don't say, because I'm more philosophically aligned with Democrats, therefore, they believe in truth. No. The overwhelming majority of the Democrats are either liars or corrupt or dead wrong about a lot of stuff, and I'm not ashamed to say it. He's going to say the Republican Party has truth on their side. It gets even worse somehow, though. They have belief in science on their side. Okay, there are a hell of a lot of anti-vaxxers on the right. There are some on the left, too. So, and the left should own that, that, hey... People are skeptical of big pharma, rightly, but sometimes that skepticism turns into cynicism and they end up not acknowledging obvious things like vaccines work, okay? Some of that on the left, sure. There's a lot of that on the right, too. And, in fact, uh, politically, at the national level, there's more of that on the right. So, oh, we believe in science. you got plenty of anti-vaxxers right now in the Republican Party. We believe in science. This is the party that disagrees with over 95% of climate scientists. And by the way, I know Jordan Peterson is skeptical on this issue of climate change as well. Hey, to tell you, Jordan, you're wrong. You're wrong. Over 95% of climate scientists believe it's real, it's a problem, we got to do something about it. And we already see the evidence happening and unrolling right in front of our eyes. 
So when you say you believe in science, clearly not, because one of the biggest scientific issues of our time, they're wrong on. And, or they acknowledge it's real, but then they drag their feet and don't want to do anything policy-wise. To be fair, that's the Democrats, too. So what are you talking about, belief in science on the right? I mean, don't make me laugh. I don't know what point he's trying to make. Like, what, how does the left not believe in science? There are some anti-vaxxers on the left, granted. I think the point he thinks he's making is like, well, the right acknowledges that men are men and women are women. And the left believes in, you know, there's biological sex, and then there's also gender, and there's like a spectrum of that stuff. So trans people are real, for example. I think he's trying to say that that is anti-science, so the right believes in science because they stress biological sex and sort of either think gender is the same or just dismiss the, the topic of gender overall. Then he says, well, you know, you guys have responsibility on your side. I don't think any national politician is just anti-responsibility. Sure, maybe some Republican politicians talk about it more. But here, I have a hot take for you. Um, I don't think that's a politician's job to lecture the citizenry about responsibility. I think the job of a politician is to represent the people and implement their will. So I don't need you to tell me what to do and how to live my life. I need you to do your job and be a good politician and carry out the will of the people. So you know what? I'll give it to him. Okay, the right talks more about responsibility. But I don't think that if you talk to Democrats or, or, or leftists, they'll be like, yes, I don't want to take care of any of my business and be personally responsible at all. Everybody, everybody has to be some degree of responsible just to live a normal life, just to get through the day. And so there's no monopoly on it. But you know what? Like I said, I'll give it to them because they use the word more often. Um, but then this one he's just dead wrong. Uh, the right has the purpose of higher education on their side? No, 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 no. We d the Build bill Back Better bill had free college in it. Now, it was watered down, and eventually it was just, you know, kicked to the curb, which is a disaster, and it's abysmal, and you blame the Democrats for that because they're negotiating against themselves, and they're terrible. But the left does argue much more for free college. The right doesn't believe, not a single Republican was for it. Not a single one. The majority of the Democrats in Congress were for it. The majority of the Democrats in the Senate were for it. So you can't say, oh, we believe in the purpose of higher education. You don't even want people to get higher education without being up to their eyeballs in debt. They don't want student loan debt reduction. They don't want free college. They don't want to treat it the same that we, have to, we treat high school, where it's just free and paid for by taxes. So you can't, oh, we believe in... in you know, how important higher education is, we just want you to have to suffer to go through it and not be able to afford it and have debt up to your eyeball and all that stuff. No, no. I think I'm a staunch advocate and a believer in higher education. I want free college, abolishing all student debt, and free trade schools. You get to pick, do I want to go to college or do I want to go to a trade school? That's what I want. That's a real belief in higher education. There's nobody on the right to talk about that at all, at all. So spare me. But anyway, there you have it. He started out good, going after Trump, going after the big lie, all that stuff, and then he had to drive it into a ditch by talking about how Republicans believe so much in truth and science. No, they most certainly do not. Okay. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, I got a lot more for you, including Charlemagne the God defends Joe Rogan. That's an interesting clip. Stay right there, y'all.
Witches, we back. Welcome to the show. Welcome back to the show, I should say. Let's keep it going. Charlemagne the God has uh, weighed in on the Joe Rogan scandal. Talked about it on The Breakfast Club. He has some interesting comments here. Let's take a look and then we'll react. I mean, listen, if you've been in this business long enough as a broadcaster, you said something stupid. You said something that would be deemed problematic at some point. But when those things come back up, what can you do? You've got to apologize and take accountability for Like I always say, you can't tell folks what to be mad at. Like, just because your intent wasn't malicious or your intent wasn't to offend, we can't tell folks how to react to the words that come out of your mouth. So you just got to deal with whatever comes your way when you say what you want. But I do want to know, what do folks want to happen? Like, when these old sound bites come out, right, you know, he apologized for them. What do you want to happen? Because this isn't, this isn't the first time. It won't be the last time, uh, you know, we hear a white person using the N-word in context, out of context, quoting rappers, quoting comedians, whatever it is. So what do you want to happen next? Wait, but but just Joe Rogan or in general? Uh, Joe Rogan or just in general, because this can happen to anybody at any given time if you've been in this business long enough. Broadcaster, rapper, comedian. Like you said, you can't control how people react. So you work for a private company, they're going to make the decision Mm -hmm. ultimately on what they decide to do. So they pulled some of the episodes, but they're still standing by him. And I think they should, because they knew all of this was before he even did the deal. So they knew that. And then people have a right to be offended. I'm going to be honest, I've never listened to an episode of Joe Rogan ever. I I have. I I I know you have. I haven't. So it's hard for me to say an opinion on somebody who I've never... Yeah, I, I don't listen to, 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 to too many. I've listened to a couple of times, but also I don't know. You know what I mean? And, and the people that seem like they know him say he's not a racist, that he's a good dude. So, I mean, what, what do you stand by? What, what? I don't know him personally. I met him twice, you know what I mean? Um, but I don't think he's racist. I've, uh, done, I've done his show. I met him at my man Andrew Schultz's wedding. I don't, I don't, I don't think he's a racist. I uh, but can right. you say racist things and not be racist? But I do, yes. just, I do think it's wild that if you look at like Joe Rogan, and you say, okay, well, they, they just scrubbed his, his, his old episodes. And then Some of them. Not like, a lot. There's a lot of episodes. Then you look at somebody like Whoopi Goldberg, who gets suspended for two weeks. Hold on. You said something that was very important. Just now. Can, wow. you, can you say racist things and not be racist? Depending, right? Because you can say a slur, right? You can say a gay slur, and, that, and not be homophobic, be, be homo-ignorant. Correct. Because a lot of times when we used to use that gay slur back in the day, it wasn't in reference to somebody's sexuality, right? That's true. That's you know? So, Yeah. Yeah, uh, look, I'm guilty of the exact same thing, man. So what they're referencing there at the end is, uh, you know, back, I'm 34 years old, back when we were in high school, even in college, um, it was very common to say things that, in retrospect, now we'd all look at as like, that's like that's homophobic. Don't do that. But we didn't use the words in a homophobic sense, but we used the words. It was very common to say, like, gay, you say that, F-A-G, people would say. And that's, like, the culture has changed and society has changed. We don't do that now. I don't do that now. But there was a time we did that. But it would be flat-out dishonest to ignore the context and pretend like every time somebody said F-A-G or gay that what they're saying is, I don't like gay people or I think gay people are inferior or whatever. Cause that is not the context that it was used in at all. Not even close. That's not because it, perfect example is this. I've always been in favor of gay marriage. As long as I can remember, I've always been in favor of gay marriage. Even when like seemingly nobody was talking about gay marriage at all. I always thought, well, why shouldn't 
gay person be able to marry a gay person if they're in love? Who cares? And so even given that stance that I've always had, even during times when I believed that, we would still use that terminology, like, say, gay or, say, F-A-G. Now, again, times have changed. We don't do that now. But I think it's just flat-out disingenuous and dishonest to pretend like, you know, if you use that terminology in that context, therefore you're equal to some homophobic bigot who does not support gay people getting married, does not support their rights by any stretch of the imagination, does not support them as a protected class, and have always disliked them and, or thought it was inferior or thought it was a sin or whatever. They're just not the same. You could say, I don't like both of those things. Fair. But there are differing degrees. And I think in order to be intellectually honest, you have to admit that. And effectively, that's what Charlemagne is admitting here. Charlemagne's like, look, we, you know, we used it too, and I, we weren't homophobic because I, I never had a problem with gay people, but you could say it was like ignorant to use that terminology. I'll take that. I'll take that. You know? uh, so let's go through more of what he says here. At the beginning, he's like, look, we've all said something stupid. You've been in this business long enough. Um, you know, we've all said something stupid, and it can be resurfaced. Then he says, you can't tell people what to be mad at. That's true. You can't tell people what to be mad at. I mean, you could try to make an argument for one side or the other, but people are going to react how they're going to react. Then he says, what do people want to happen? I actually think that's an important point because, I mean, I think, and you guys can tell me, you know, you're involved in these uh, debates and discussions as well, but I think some people genuinely want Spotify to kick Rogan off. And it's like, okay, well, let's say they, they get that. They get their head on the platter that they're asking for. But then what? Because Rumble already offered him $100 million to be exclusive with them. Um, I don't think Joe would go there, but he's still got, you know, clips on YouTube. YouTube wouldn't kick him off if he goes back full-time to YouTube. He doesn't have to have a deal with YouTube management, with the company YouTube, but he could just go on YouTube like anybody else. Um, there's a number of other podcast things that would host him. He's not Alex Jones. So, you know, Alex Jones is almost a unique case because of the Sandy Hook thing and because literally all of polite society started despising him. It was almost easy for them to censor and deplatform him and without too much noise. But Joe's not him. And so... If you get him off of Spotify, then what? If he goes to YouTube, you do a campaign against YouTube, somebody at some point is going to draw the line and be like, no, we don't agree with what Rogan says. In fact, we might even dislike Rogan, but he's allowed to talk. So what do you want? Even if, so let's say best case scenario for the people who are crusading against Joe here. He gets kicked off of Spotify. Maybe he goes back to YouTube. Maybe he sets up his own site or whatever. And look, maybe he actually loses 10%, 15%, 20% of his audience, which is possible because sometimes the deplatforming stuff works to one extent or another. Milo's a good example of it. There have been others. Um, but even if he loses 10, 15, 20% of his audience, he's still colossal and he's not going anywhere. So I don't know, like what's the end game is what Charlemagne is asking. And I have the same question, what's the end game? And so it all seems like even if you are really strong on that side of the argument, nothing's going to come of it. Nothing's going to come of it. Um, then he says, this can happen to anybody at any time. Big difference is Charlemagne says, I think Charlemagne's been on the podcast twice, or I think he said twice, right? And then he said, look, I, li I listen to a show all the time, too. And who was that? Angela Yee? One of the other hosts was like, I, I don't listen to him. Now, notice, a huge difference there. Like, the person who listens to him is kind of defending him, and the person who doesn't wants to be against him. But she's fair, and she, you know, she doesn't go all in against him. But I do think there is a big divide in this conversation between people who've listened to him, whether every now and then or often, versus people who never listen to him. And the ones who never listen to him are the ones who are most convinced he's basically like David Duke. Um, now, by the way, there are some people who listen to him and still are like, I, I hate it. 
and are on the side of like, you know, kick him off or punish him or whatever. That exists. But that's a relatively small percentage compared to the people who watched him. Even if they don't like what he said or agree with him, they're like, you know, what do you want to happen? Like, what do you want to do? So there's Charlemagne is making a, a, a pretty big defense here. And then uh, he gets to a point that I think it's a very nuanced point, and I don't think almost anybody else is making it, which is this. Can you say racist things and not be racist? And Charlemagne's like, yeah, you can. He goes on to say, well, look, it depends. Uh, but, I mean, I definitely think that's true. And then he brings up the homophobia point and, you know, he used to use the words, but we didn't mean we don't like gay people. And um, I don't, the war on context is absurd to me. Again, you don't have to like that Rogan said the N-word 22 times. Rogan doesn't like it. I don't think anybody likes it. Um, but you can't say that when he's quoting a, you know, a comedy bit or he's reading a quote from somebody or he's, you know, talking about the word and uses the word versus calling somebody the word. You can't say there's no differences. That's just not true. That's just not accurate. And so it is true you could say racist things and not be racist. And by the way, I think the worst thing Rogan said is not even the N-word in context. Um, and they talk about this further in the clip. You didn't see it there, but it's in the clip. Um, he made a joke one time doing a podcast with Joey Diaz like over a decade ago where he, he says, like, I went to go see Planet of the Apes. I saw it in a black neighborhood. It's like I walked into Planet of the Apes. And so, I mean, that's a racist joke. There's no way around it. Like, what he said there was racist. You know who admits that? Joe. <laughs> and literally in the clip right after, he's like, oh, that was racist. Why did I say that? And so that begs the question, can you say a racist thing and not be racist? And Charlemagne is saying, yeah, I think you can. And I think that's true. Now, what actually constitutes racism? Because that, that is the question in context here. And I think different people will have different standards. Um, but in my opinion, it, it's more like the textbook definition of like, you think certain races are inferior and others are superior. And it doesn't even necessarily have to be your own that you think is superior. Uh, but anybody who believes in sort of a, a racial hierarchy, like they're inferior, there's in, objectively inferior and objectively superior, and that's what you think of it. And he says very clearly, look, I don't think Joe is racist. I mean, you guys can determine, you guys can use your own, uh, you know, reason on this front. But look, I'll, I'm in no position to judge anybody given my own history of old tweets. Everybody knows my old tweets, you know? And like, yeah, some of this stuff was stupid, and, but some of it was just shit posting. And I mean, we're all idiots to one extent or another. The question is, uh, are you actually a racist or a bigot? Uh, do you actually think that people are inherently inferior or superior based on arbitrary characteristics like skin color? And um, I, I think that in today's climate, it's just like, if there's any little thing that's off, it's just you're automatically one of the bad people. And look, if you believe that, that's your prerogative, that's totally fine. But, you know, a lot of people out there, they know what they really believe. They know what's in their hearts. So if you try to accuse them of racism or bigotry or whatever, and they don't feel like that and they're not that, then they're going to say, I think you're wrong. And so I think, I think Charlemagne's comments here were great because they were nuanced. They're complex. Um, he, he doesn't think Joe's a racist. And um, he also says, again, really important point. We've all said something stupid. This can happen to anybody at any time. 
we all say dumb shit, ignorant shit, sometimes racist shit. And um, it, the difference is people who own up to it, acknowledge it, admit fault when they think they're wrong, um, and the people who are genuinely hateful, genuinely bigoted and racist, and maybe, you know, think they never did anything wrong ever. So, again, you can determine what you think is fair and unfair, but certainly I cannot throw stones in the glass house that I built, and everybody knows I'm in the glass house that I'm in, so take that for what it is. Russell Brand. So Russell Brand was labeled a right-winger in a tweet that kind of went viral about Joe Rogan's guests, the guests that he has on. And um, he clearly uh, was irked by that fact. And so he did a segment addressing it. Now, it's a much longer segment. I suggest you go look at the entire thing. This is sort of like spliced up a whole bunch of different parts of it where he's addressing this claim. Let's take a look, and then I'll react. Talked about Joe Rogan's guests and their political biases, and I noticed that, oh, Russ, me, the person who I live inside of, whose voice I use when I talk, Russell Brand, that's who I am, is featured on there, has been on Joe Rogan three times, fine, sure, I remember those occasions, but as a right-wing guest, how am I right-wing? I'm anti-war. If anti-war makes me right-wing then I guess I'm right-wing. I don't agree with Tucker on identity politics. I don't agree with Tucker on the issue of homelessness. I see some stuff on that channel. I think, God, that is not me at all. I believe that big tech companies should be really strongly regulated and broken down. I believe that massive companies should pay their taxes in the countries that they make money from. I believe that public health workers, firefighters, police officers, people that do jobs that put their own lives on the line should be properly paid, properly supported, properly trained. I believe that the most vulnerable people in society, the mentally ill, drug addicts, the vulnerable, should be looked after and taken care of. I believe that small businesses should be given every opportunity to thrive. I believe the community should be run by the people that live in them and however you identify sexually racially religiously that's your business your right you should be whoever you want to be but all of us should allow one another to be who we are and get on with it so if wanting big pharma to be regulated and for ordinary americans to buy drugs at a reasonable price is right wing then I'm right-wing. We also talk about Johnson and Johnson's part in the opioid crisis. Now, for me, that's an attack on big business. Criticising big business, whatever else it is, it is not right-wing. And the whole reason, I'm aware of this, that a voice such as mine, along with loads and loads of other voices, I'm not claiming to be the only show in town, has become relevant, is because of the ineffectualness of the contemporary media, their unwillingness to openly critique big business, because they've allied themselves with the political centre-left. I wouldn't even call that the left. That's not capable of being the left. The left should be representing the interests of ordinary people against big business. So there you have it. Um, let me go ahead now and throw up this next graphic. This is the, the viral tweet that he's responding to. So this says, Joe Rogan fans often point to his fig leaf endorsement of Bernie Sanders as proof that Rogan isn't right-wing, but right-wingers overwhelmingly are his favorites, as you can see from his guest list. Um, help me add to this if you'd like. So, yeah, the list is, you can see on the left there, Crystal Ball, Kamau Bell, Lee Camp, Tommy Chung, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Jimmy Dore, Anna Kasparian, me, uh, Dan Savage, Amy Schumer, Kevin Smith, Edward Snowden, Jank Uger, and you can see the number of times that these guests have been on. And then you see the other column of people who are 
you know, nominally on the right that Joe has had on. Now, there's a couple things in response to this. First of all, um, the list is nowhere near complete and nowhere near accurate. So just to give a few corrections in the left-wing column, uh, David Pakman's not listed. He's been on at least twice. Cornell West isn't listed, and he called that one of his favorite podcasts. Bernie Sanders isn't listed, even though Bernie Sanders named in the tweet, but he wasn't included on the guest list. Weird. Um, Abby Martin isn't included. I don't know, man. I think so. I'm tied for the most of, of a lefty going on YouTube, according to this graphic, but I don't even think that's true. I think Abby may have been on more times than me. Uh, so she's had to at least have been on five times. And, I, you know, I was on five times. She may have been on six, seven times. I mean, I seem to recall her being on a lot. So that's just a few problems with the left-wing column. And then the right-wing column, I mean, shit. Let's see some of the names here. Um, Roseanne Barr, yeah, fair to call her right-wing now. Uh, Carl Benjamin, that's Sargon of Akkad, yeah, definitely right. Owen Benjamin, definitely In fact, he's like openly alt-right and very questionable now, to say the least. That guy's got real issues. I think literally, like, mental issues. Um, Alex Berenson, I'm not exactly sure who that is. Peter Bogosian, he's like a professor who's sort of in this anti-woke lane. Um, but Russell Brand included in the right, I mean, I really, that's just not fair. It's just not. Adam Carolla's right-wing. Stephen Crowder's definitely right-wing. Not sure who Adam Curry is. Tim Dillon is not right-wing. He's definitely an anti-woke comedian, but his politics are also left-leaning in terms of, you know, the economy and war and things of that nature, and it's pretty clear that he's left in that sense. Uh, Nick is definitely right-wing. Sager's right-leaning. Uh, Tulsi, I mean, look, she's was a registered Democrat. I don't know if she still is. Most of her views were uh, left-leaning. She definitely has done sort of a turn and gone in a right-wing direction, but I don't know if it's fair enough just to call her right-wing. They need to add another column that's almost like enlightened centrist or something, um, and maybe maybe even another column that's like just apolitical and not involved in politics at all, because a lot of his, his podcasts have nothing to do with politics at all. You know, they got Sam Harris in the right-wing uh, on the right-wing side. I mean, some of his views, yes, um, but a lot of his views, no. Again, they should add the enlightened centrist column or something of that nature. I, I just This list is just not very accurate. Yes, a lot of these people are right-wing, but a lot of them are either not or sort of in a weird middle ground, or they have some right-wing views and some left-wing views. I mean, Steven Pinker, just if right-wing is fair to call him that, I don't know, maybe some of his views, but I don't think that's an all-encompassing label that really makes too much sense for him. Uh, Bridget Fetisi, again, there's got to be some sort of enlightened centrist column here. Um, now, by the way, even given all the corrections, yeah, I still think it's fair to say that most of his guests lean right. Um, I just don't know why that matters so much and why you hang your hat on that. He clearly, Joe is a guy who fancies himself sort of apolitical. He's not really, but he thinks he's apolitical. Um, he, a lot of his views do lean right, but he's got a lot of views that also lean left. And the conversation is so annoying because, like, nobody – now the caricature of him is, like, he's just flat he, – like, he's just Rush Limbaugh. He's been compared to Rush Limbaugh a number of times um, in the media now. And I just – that's just not fair. It's just not accurate. It's just not true. The harshest criticism that you can give of him is that, look, he's contradictory. He's contradictory. And usually whatever guests he's sitting in front of – you know, he'll sort of go with the flow wherever the guest wants to take it. So when Ben Shapiro's on, Joe appears a lot more right-wing. And then when I'm on, Joe appears a lot more left-wing. I, I think that's a fair assessment and a fair criticism. But certainly 
the way he's being portrayed, I think, is far too harsh. Now, let's get back to the Russell Brand thing. He goes down the list. He's like, look, I'm anti-war. Uh, I don't agree with Tucker on identity politics. I, I think the stuff on homelessness is gross that he does because they want to, like, criminalize. Um, he wants higher taxes on corporations and the rich. He wants to break up big business and regulate them. He wants to help the vulnerable and drug addicts. He wants lower drug prices. And he's trying to establish his lefty bona fides. Is that how you say it? Bona fides? Bona fides? Whatever it is. He's trying to establish that. And Russell Brand, no matter how you slice it or dice it, definitely leans more left than right. I mean, I think that's kind of inescapable. Now, I will say, and this doesn't necessarily apply to Russell Brand, I don't think, but there are, we have to come up with a new word for somebody who is personally, like their own politics are left-wing, but everything they say functionally helps right-wing causes. You know what I mean? Because that is a category that now exists. There is a category of people, and the, the reverse, too. Somebody who might say, I'm right-wing, but then, like, everything they say is, like, to the benefit of the left-wing. I, I think that those are, like, sort of kind of new categories that we need, we need a new title for. We need a new word for it. We need a new term for it. I don't know, like, contrarian leftist? So, like, your politics are actually on the left, but a lot of the stuff you says just bolsters the right. Or contrarian right-winger? So a lot of the stuff you say helps the left even though you're right. So I, that, that is a, a category that is real, and I think everybody should acknowledge that that's a thing that exists. But I don't think it's fair to put Russell in that category. I think the reason why they are putting Russell in that category is because Russell has gone hard against vaccine mandates. Um, but I will say that alone does not just make you a right-winger. Now, my position on vaccine mandates, as you all know, I don't like a hard mandate. I think that's too authoritarian, but I like the idea of vaccinate or test. So, like, you don't have to get the vaccine, that's fine, but you should have to test in the height of a fucking pandemic where thousands of people are dying every day in the U.S. I think that's fair. So I think that sort of splits the difference between the community, the community well-being and individual rights. But just because Russell is against the mandates, that doesn't just mean you could say he's right-wing full stop. I don't think that's fair. Um, so... There is a, another thing that happens where the media does try to, anybody who they think is like borderline or questionable, they'll just say they're on the right. And they'll think, go after them in a vicious culture war induced, culture war drunk kind of way. And that's annoying because this is a, it's such a disadvantage that the left has where it's like everybody just wants to declare others are not left enough and they're more pure. And so you make your circle tighter and tighter and tighter until you're talking there with like three friends and nobody else wants to be with you. And so it's basically the opposite of a big tent approach. It's the opposite of changing hearts and minds and accepting with open arms. And the fundamental contradiction at the heart of that, as we talked about with Ben Burgess on Crystal Kyle and Friends, is like there are leftists, probably most leftists, who agree, look, if you committed a crime, we want to try to rehabilitate you. We, just don't, we don't want to just punish you, lock you up, throw away the key, because that's brutal. That's unfair. And that makes no sense. So if you can actually rehabilitate somebody, we should try to rehabilitate them. And if we succeed in rehabilitating them, then you welcome them back in with open arms. If you committed grand larceny or you committed this crime or that crime, or we, they, people even want to rehabilitate murderers. And so on the one hand, it's like, let's be open-minded enough to try to rehabilitate people who commit the most heinous crimes. But on the other hand, it's like, well, if you tweeted something in 2009 that was, uh, that was racist or was problematic, you're like permanently banned from the club. And it's like, that doesn't make sense. You can't believe so much in rehabilitation and welcoming people on, on the one hand. And on the other hand, 
believe in the opposite, believe in like this absolutist uh, essentialism where it's like you are the worst of the things you've ever said and done. So anyway, Russell's not right wing. Um, I think sometimes he tries to appeal to a much broader audience and he makes such a concerted effort to do that that oftentimes his videos don't focus on his left wing beliefs that much. But that is a fundamentally different thing from saying he's just right wing full stop. So clearly, he didn't like being labeled that, and um, I think his response was sufficient to say the least. All right, next. So Brian Stelter um, is really taking it hard that Jeff Zucker is gone. Jeff Zucker, of course, stepped down. He's probably pushed out, but he was stepped down because he stepped down because uh, he was. He had an affair with somebody who was working under him. Um, he says it started recently, but the new information is that it didn't really, that he's sort of been with this woman for a long time. He didn't disclose it. He had to at least disclose it uh, to CNN, and he didn't do that, or to AT&T, the parent company. He didn't do that. So he sent a letter and, and stepped down. And the CNN hosts are taking it hard, which is kind of hilarious. So in comes Brian Stelter. This is, I think, the show immediately after we learned that um, – Zucker was stepping down, and I love this sanctimonious, smug, self-righteous rant. Look, read the banner as this comes up. This is hilarious to me. The banner's like, this is CNN, and look at some of the stuff he says. I want to end the hour with a final thought, and I'm going to go a little bit uh, rogue here, so bear with me, okay? Jeff Zucker's departure was shocking to the staff of CNN, but CNN was not built by just one man, not by only Ted Turner, and it was not led only by Jeff Zucker. CNN is so much bigger than any single individual. It is about teams and teams of people, thousands of individuals who make up CNN. This place is not perfect. It will never be perfect. We will always have flaws. We will always screw up. We will always have to run corrections. We will always have to keep working to make it better and better and better every single day. That is the goal. But the people who say we're lacking journalism, that we've become an all-talk channel, that we've run off and we're all opinions all the time, that Jeff Zucker led us astray, those people aren't watching CNN. They're not watching CNN. They're watching complaints about CNN on other channels that don't know what they're talking about. That's the truth. Let's put the map up on screen of bureaus around the world. CNN has more bureaus around the world than almost any other news organization on the planet. Do some of the anchors say provocative things? Yes. Do some of those clips get played over and over again on other channels and mislead people about what CNN actually is? Yes. CNN is the reporters and the producers and the production assistants and the writers and the editors and the technical directors. CNN is the executives and it's the interns and everybody in between who keeps this place running 24-7. So when something horrible happens in the world or when something wonderful happens in the world, you know where to turn. That's what CNN is. We lost our leader this week, but we're not going anywhere. Yes, you are. A bunch of you guys are going to be let go. Uh, you know, it, finally somebody uh, connected the dots for me. I was talking to Crystal about this, and she made the point that 
there's a reason why all the CNN hosts behind the scenes, according to a lot of reporting, like they're melting down. Jake Tapper called Chris Cuomo a terrorist. Um, there's another host. Is it Camarota? It might be Allison Camarota, who said, this is affecting all of our mental health. You got this smug stuff coming from Stelter. These guys are acting like, you know, it's the end of the world because Jeff Zucker was like, oh, why? Not because Jeff Zucker did a good job as the head of CNN. I mean, honestly, even a minimal amount of objectivity, you'll come to the conclusion that's not the case. They're upset because Jeff Zucker protected all of them. He protected them. He let them keep their jobs even though they suck and they get terrible ratings. So now with Jeff Zucker out, these guys probably, I'm on borrowed time. Jake Tapper thinks he's on borrowed time. Brian Stelter thinks he's on borrowed time. You know, I don't know, Alton Camarona, probably the same thing. So that's why they were upset. I couldn't figure it out at first. I didn't connect those dots. But when Crystal made that point, I was like, oh, that's right. That's why they're acting like they're at a funeral. Because whoever's going to come in, I mean, if they do their job even a little bit like they should, they clean house and let go of all these people. Because they're not good at what they do. They're just not. Now, this smug, self-righteous, stuck-up rant, it's so insufferable, particularly because we know how corrupt the network was acting and how they weren't acting in good faith and how they were trying to cover their ass. Like, the information just came out, Brian. Brian Stelter went on, like, Stephen Colbert's show and tried to defend what Chris Cuomo did with his brother. Chris Cuomo used to have his brother, Andrew Cuomo, governor of New York, on the show during the height of COVID when Andrew Cuomo was getting all this positive coverage. He was doing the daily COVID press briefings. And Chris Cuomo would play footsie with him and play patty cakes with him all day long and say, you know, I think you're the best governor in the country. And how did you get so good at this? And they joke around about mom spaghetti eating Sunday dinners. And Chris Cuomo would hold a giant Q-tip for some reason that I still don't understand. And, um, it was nothing but propaganda. It was nothing but puffing up Andrew Cuomo to make him seem like he's, you know, amazing and he's the antidote to Trump and he's exactly what you need in the middle of a crisis like a pandemic. Then, come to find out, Andrew Cuomo was hiding the number of COVID deaths. He signed in order to get COVID-positive patients back into nursing homes, which then led to probably countless deaths. We don't even know how many deaths it led to. Um, he was writing a book about defeating COVID when COVID was still raging. He was, he, there were a number of corruption scandals about Andrew Cuomo. He used the wrong, um, you know, supplies to build a bridge and then tried to cover it up. And those supplies would have made the bridge less safe. And one of his top guys went down for corruption, literally was, you know, I think he was found guilty. He was convicted of something on corruption. CNN didn't touch any of that stuff with a 10-foot pole because they were just having the brothers play patty cakes on air. That is, that is Democratic Fox News shit. These guys love to beat up on Fox News. Brian Stelter wrote a book about how bad Fox News is and how they serve the Republican Party, how they're not news. And then they do the same thing for the Democrats. And he does this smug, sanctimonious rant as if he's not the mirror image, as if he's not the exact same problem just on the Democratic side. And, you know, now we know uh, Jeff Zucker was coaching Andrew Cuomo throughout this whole thing. And CNN is supposed to be a news network and call balls and strikes about what Democrats and Republicans are doing. They weren't. He was coaching Andrew Cuomo through the height of his, you know, his COVID press briefings and made him this media darling. So this rant is just insufferable. It's unbearable because not only did the Chris Cuomo stuff unmask you guys, 
you guys also push Russiagate relentlessly. I mean, they, they ran with the story that was a total fabrication of Julian Assange met with Paul Manafort. Turns out to totally be made up, but they ran with the story. There would have been video evidence if that was the case, and, but they just ran with it. We know that's false. They ran with the Jussie Smollett thing, which I didn't touch with a 10-foot pole because it seemed fishy. They pushed all of our wars, you know? Uh, they did the whole uh, Rogan taking horse medicine thing. Now, look, ivermectin is a separate question. There's contradictory evidence as to whether or not it works on COVID, but they were pretending he was taking the horse version of it, and that just wasn't true, and then they doubled down on that and tripled down on that. There was the famous clip when Wolf Blitzer was talking to Rand Paul. Rand Paul said, we shouldn't really be arming Saudi Arabia because they commit a lot of crimes and kill a lot of innocent people. And Wolf Blitzer says, well, what about the jobs? Like, kill civilians, have more jobs. Kill civilians, like, okay, we got to worry about our jobs, right? So if you've got to kill some civilians to keep the jobs, what are you going to do? This is who they are. Look, you're not fooling anybody. You guys have a sensationalism bias, and you guys have a pro-establishment bias and a Democratic Party bias. And, of course, there's all the advertisers, which means you go soft on the corporations. It's, it's obvious. And I hope that whoever the new person is cleans house, because you guys are really bad at your job. You know, I, Everyone knows I'm as big of a free speech advocate as, as there is. But if your job is supposed to be a journalist, you're supposed to be like a reporter. You're supposed to give news and information. And you are just a propagandist. You got to go. And their job is nominally journalist or reporter. And they act all smug about it. But look at their track record. Sorry, guys. You got to go. You got to clean house. I think, you know, CNN needs to change direction. Now, my guess is whatever they replace this current model with is going to be just as bad, if not worse. So we'll have to wait and see on that front. But Brian Stelter, for the love of God, hold this L, dog. Okay, next. So the other day, we covered how California Democrats killed the single-payer health care bill in the most egregious way possible. They just ran out the clock. Um, Daily Poster did a lot of phenomenal reporting around that. It is a scandal that it wasn't NBC News, CBS, ABC, CNN, um, MSNBC, the New York Times, the Washington Post. It's a scandal that they didn't run the story. This is why independent media is so important. This is why the Daily Poster is so important. You know, there are a lot of good independent media outlets that do real investigative work, whether it's Jordan Chariton or um, Daily Poster or More Perfect Union. They're so necessary. They're doing what mainstream media should do, but they never do. So Daily Poster blew the lid off that story. Oh, my God, look at all this money from the health insurance companies that these Democrats are taking. And then they kill the single-payer bill, well, now they're out with a new ad about this exact issue. Uh, Take a look at it. It features yours truly, and I really think it's a devastating pro-Medicare for All ad, anti-corruption ad, anti-Gavin Newsom ad. Take a look. During that campaign, Newsom was totally unequivocal. A single-payer system drives down the cost of health care. Single-payer health care in California faces its next challenge Monday. Lawmakers of the state assembly are set to vote on AB 1400, the framework for a government-funded universal health care system. It's actually the one step closer to making it to the governor's desk. The bill died in legislature Monday. At the very last minute, 
They killed the bill. They literally just ran out the clock. They didn't even bring the bill up for a vote. What happened in between the time that Newsom said he wanted a single-payer bill and then he backed away from it? Well, one million dollar check from a major health insurance company was dumped into the California Democratic Party. Great reporting from David Sirota. It was all because of the campaign contributions. The bill was sponsored by the California Nurses Association and would have centralized a state-run financing system known as CalCare. Under CalCare, you would have comprehensive care even beyond what typical insurance covers. Studies show seven percent of the doesn't have health care at all. And you still have 3 million people in the state of California without health insurance. You have my firm and absolute commitment as your next governor that I will lead the effort to get it done. Newsom himself, uh, his campaign has taken lots of money from health insurance companies in between him saying I support single payer and then backing away from it. When asked about this bill, he said, quote, this is hard work. It's one thing to say, it's another to do. Indeed. It is one thing to say and another to do. The actual political temperature, the climate in California is one that supports this across political lines, but the politicians themselves won't do it. A campaign on universal health care, we're delivering that. Nobody's even going to ask them. The media's not even going to ask them, hey, what went down with that single-payer bill that was supposed to pass? I don't think the issue is going away. I think you're going to see this bill continue to come up. It's a question on leadership. That was a great ad. Everybody go support the Daily Poster. They're doing great work. Another person who's doing great work on anti-monopoly stuff is uh, Matt Stoller over on Substack. Like I said, More Perfect Union is great. Jordan Chariton does a lot of great stuff. All these people. Look, this show, what I do is commentary. Commentary. You know, I am, I'm a pundit. And so I don't do original reporting here. Everybody knows that. I, I look at the news, see the stuff I'm interested in, give you the facts and the information, and then give my opinion on it. That's what I do. What they do is more important. It is genuinely more important. I can serve as like a megaphone to help get out the stuff that they do, which is the real work, but they're the ones doing the real work. That's the real work. So you've got to support these guys. Um, and they all need it. Everybody in the independent media needs the help. And um, the, the move from here in terms of, Medicare for all and single payer and it popping up in states, because I do think we're more likely to get victories through the states than at the federal level. Um, but the path to it is now clear. The path to it is going to be through direct ballot initiatives. Because, by the way, that's how we got marijuana legalized in a lot of different places. That's how we got a $15 minimum wage in a lot of different places in a lot of different states. Even when Donald Trump won Florida in the 2020 election, the $15 minimum wage bill or a direct ballot initiative, also won. So more Trump voters turned out, but 60% of the population of Florida voted for the $15 minimum wage bill. What that shows you is when we get to directly vote on issues, it's way more likely than not that the correct side wins. Now, sometimes the overwhelming propaganda makes it so that uh, the correct side loses, but when you, look at, when you break it down empirically, what you find is probably like 80% of the time-ish is how much the, the correct side wins. So I think that's the only way that we're going to have success. Because look, clearly Gavin Newsom's a piece of trash. This is a guy who, you know, acted like he's so serious about Medicare for all, and he, w- he was clear in the stuff he said. But then when push came to shove and it was time to do it, he didn't do it. He didn't lift a finger. So you don't trust that goddamn word that that guy says because he's a liar. 
He's a liar who can be bought off, and you're under no obligation, no matter what anybody tells you, vote blue no matter who. If they stab you in your back on the most important issues, then why would you vote for them? Why would you do that? Now, I'm not a political nihilist. I don't think you should totally check out of the system in every way, shape, and form. In fact, I think that's, that is self-disenfranchisement, and that's counterproductive, and that gives the establishment what they want. But, but you engage in a productive way that actually works. Direct ballot initiatives or voting for candidates who you genuinely believe are not going to stab you in the back. And a good indication of whether or not they're going to stab you in the back is not only if they say the right things, but also if you see where their funding comes from. If their funding is from health insurance companies, they can say they're from Medicare for All until the cows come home, but they're probably not going to be from Medicare for All. So anyway, there you have it. Again, great work from the Daily Poster, great work from David Sirota. Uh, this was a wonderful ad. Guys, spread this far and wide. It's an important issue, and you need to shine a light on it, just how corrupt and backwards and disgusting these politicians are. But we're going we're gonna to keep going. We're going to fight back. The issue is going to keep coming up, exactly like David Sirota said. All right, next. This next tweet that I'm about to show you is my favorite genre of tweet. It is clueless right-winger who hasn't thought through an issue very much at all, who shows their whole ass on the TL. So let's take a look. This is from Kevin Sorbo, a.k.a. Hercules. This guy's insanely right-wing. He says, if the shots were given away for free because they're life-saving, why isn't insulin free? Chemotherapy. EpiPens. Got him. <laughs> My response to that is, yes. That's it. That's my whole response. Yes. That's exactly right. This is, like, this is what, the second time, third time we've seen this exact tweet from different people? I don't know who else did it. I think it was Candace Owens one time. Maybe Tomato Lorenzo said it. But this is, this is now a thing. They seriously think they're owning the libs. It's like owning the libs by supporting universal health care. <laughs> oh, boy, you really owned us, bro. No, this is exactly right. And in every other industrialized country, this is the case. All that stuff is free. Now, I can already hear the right-wingers screaming, nothing's free, bro. Yes, free at the point of service, also known as funded through tax dollars also known as no shit, you pedantic fuck. Everybody knows this. Whenever somebody says it's free, it just means free at the point of service, which is accurate, funded by tax dollars. Now, I don't know about you guys, but for me, I would love to live in a country where we didn't spend trillions of dollars on endless war. What do our Middle East wars cost? What do the war on terror cost? When you look at all the different places we invaded and bombed and all that stuff, $8 trillion, $7 trillion when all is said and done. I would rather not have our money go towards that and not have our money go towards trillions of dollars of bailing out Wall Street with no strings attached. I prefer my money and your money go towards health care and college for everybody and maybe paid vacation time by law. Maybe things like that that we would actually all enjoy that you go to pay your taxes and you think, boy, I'm happy to pay these taxes because I know exactly what it's going towards and it's going towards things that are good for the people. Wouldn't that be lovely? Wouldn't that be wonderful? I can't believe they tweet this. They don't realize what they're doing. They don't realize what they're saying. Yeah, the shots are free. By the way, they also work. 
know that triggers a lot of people. Uh, and insulin should be free, chemotherapy should be free, EpiPen should be free. There is no, I saw somebody trying to make a, like a meaningful distinction, like, well, one's contagious and the other one's not, so that's the difference. When you get sick, you should get help and not go bankrupt or have to pay for it. Full stop. That's what I think. That's my position. And if you say, hey, only infectious diseases, those are the things that should be free. Okay, well, there's a lot more infectious diseases than just COVID. You know? So it would be a weird system to only the infectious ones and the other ones are, it's like, well, if you got cancer, either through personal behavior because you didn't live the healthiest life or genetic predisposition or whatever it is, that person also deserves help. And not to go bankrupt as a result of it. So, yes, Kevin Sorbo, yes, universal health care. Going to give away the shots for free, which was wonderful. You should also give away insulin for free, chemotherapy, EpiPens. Um, you guys know me. Not only would I nationalize health care, I'd nationalize health insurance. That's single payer. I'd nationalize pharma. There are some industries that have proven over the course of time and there's counter evidence that shows that other systems work better. But the profit motive in this specific area has incredibly negative impacts. And there's no way around it. There's no doubt about it. When you have a middleman for no reason, when you have that mafia in the middle, what do they do? Their job is to make as much profit as possible for their shareholders. They have a fiduciary responsibility to do that. So they say, look, I'm going to deny you care as much as possible because that's how I make more money. So if you have a claim, shit, you better dot all your I's and cross all your T's and not mess up at all on the form. And, you know, I'm going to try to weasel out of paying for whatever it is for you because that's how I make more money. What a terrible system. What a terrible system. That's not to say that the profit motive is bad in every respect. It's not. There are plenty of consumer goods where there is really no downside. And sometimes the competition actually makes it better in certain realms, whether, I don't know, video games, the, uh, furniture, shit like that. That could, be, that could have the profit motive, but certain things shouldn't. We've already come to that conclusion for policing, for the military, for the fire department. Healthcare is the next incredibly, incredibly obvious one, and obviously health insurance too. All right, next. Laura Ingram did a segment here with one of her guests on Fox News, and they talked about um, – how sex is being taught in colleges in a way that triggers them and makes them uncomfortable. So let's watch the video and then I'll react. Learning question at campuses this week is, do you engage in kink or polyamory? At Ohio State University, and I'm not making this up, they are featuring an event called Great Minds Think Alike with Lion's Den. This is a quote. This beginner's workshop will give you an introduction to all things bondage, dominance, submission, sexism, masochism, fetish, and a variety of toys and gear. Just what everybody wants for their daughters and sons. And at Tulane University, collegiates can create anatomically exact tools based on human modeling techniques and presents a vast spectrum of genitalia, Laura, meant to destigmatize genitals and celebrate what the are we doing? What happened to this? What happened to our what has happened to our Monday segment with Raymond? It went right into the toilet. Raymond, this no, is no, no. like it's outrageous that they're violating our kids' innocence with this stuff. They're training them basically to be sex workers or degenerates. I mean, I don't know why this is happening, but we all should put a stop to it. This is our state dollars and tuition yeah. being paid for this crap. It's, I mean it's, it's funny, it's, but it's horrible. Now, 
Um, I don't care. Look, they're they're old enough. They're old enough to. Can you say it's a little weird to have classes that go that deep into sex stuff? Sure, I'll give you weird. You know, I'll give you outside of the norm, but I don't think it's that big of a deal. They're old enough. What the class is probably full of twenty-year-olds, right? So by the time people are twenty, a lot of them are doing it, and that's obvious. That's obvious. So I don't like. What's the problem? Of all the problems in the world, this is the thing that they focus on. This is the thing. Look, it's a reemergence of that like culturally conservative prudeness that was in vogue in like the early 2000s and 1990s on Fox News and it sort of went away for a little bit but now it's back. I don't know if you guys remember this. I do because I'm ancient but you know Bill O'Reilly I actually think Sean Hannity was the primary offender but he used to do these segments every time there was spring break they would Fox News would send a camera crew down there to show the debauchery and, and you know they would do their segments like you're not going to believe the stuff that's happening in America on spring break what your kids are doing and then as they're talking, you, they'd have, like, a, a video up of, like, girls in bikinis shaking their asses and people grinding on each other and people, you know, uh, flaunting their titties and all sorts of stuff. And it's all happening on screen as they're like, this is so outrageous. Let's all watch together. This is wild and crazy. Let's put it on the screen for two and a half minutes straight. Are you done yet? Did you finish? Okay, then we can take it off the screen. It's all, it, it, it's fake. It's fake. It's fake. They don't really care. Uh, it's all just culture war claptrap. It's to gin up this sentiment, this feeling of like, oh my God, my, my daughter isn't safe. And what a, what a cultural and societal degradation brought about by the left. And we need to go back to old school family values. People, especially in the age group that they're talking about here in college, um, People forever were getting it on, thinking about it, talking about it uh, throughout history in this age group. If you want, sure, you can make an argument, well, let's just go back to shoving that deep into our subconscious and keeping it out of our psyche and, like, pretending it's not real. Okay, you can make an argument for that, but, look, it's also just fundamentally dishonest. It's dishonest. And honestly, I haven't seen studies on this, but I reckon the more sex education people get, the safer the sex is that they have. You know, uh, if you don't teach people and they don't know all the ins and outs of it, you're probably willing to take more risks. So sort of normalizing the conversation might have some upsides. I don't know for sure, but it might. It might. But no, they just go in full old school prude brave sex workshops. The one thing I will agree on is this. You don't want to have some, like, uber creepy teacher, some, like, massive perv who's like, I'll teach that kid to people who are 30 years younger than me. (laughs) Okay, no, no. Make sure, triple vet whoever the teacher is to make sure that it's reasonable, you know, that they're non-insane. But do I have a problem with classes on that stuff? No. I mean, the whole idea of college... It should be, you know how in comedy there's the saying, nothing held sacred? Like, you basically just, you go all out. You know, you might cross the line sometimes, but in order to be funny, you've got to get close to the line without going over the line. So, like, you're always going to be testing it. I think in college, 
it should be like nothing else sacred. You should be learning the ins and outs of everything. Ins and outs, no pun intended, of, of all sorts of stuff, whether it's philosophy or psychology or history or math or science or whatever, and sex. So it's a little weird class. I'm not sure I'd take it, but am I outraged by it? Should it make you know, a nightly news show as a big deal? Absolutely not. All right, final story of the day, y'all. Jordan Peterson went on the PBD podcast. Uh, the guy who hosts it is the guy who does the, sh- the uh, YouTube channel Valuetainment. Um, and Jordan had a moment here where he talks about direct democracy and how he's really not a fan. So let's watch and then I'll react. The entire parliamentary system is set up to follow the public in an intelligent way. It's not easy to figure out what people think or what they want. It isn't even easy for individuals to figure out what they themselves think or want. It's really hard. And these traditions that we've set up of representative democracy are ways of listening to the people that are measured and thoughtful and long-term, and they're being supplanted by idiot opinion polls that are run by people who have instrumental desires. They want to win the next election. Well, I know you have to win the damn next election, you know, but pandering to a mob who's frightened because you scared them, that doesn't constitute leadership, certainly not democracy. There's a reason we don't have direct democracy. There's a reason for that. It's like rule by impulse. It's not a good structure. It's not a good strategy. We figured that out a long time ago. Our our organizations are way too large and complex for anything like direct democracy to work. We're going to have a a vote on every issue? Obviously not. People just don't have the expertise for that. And it's not like they shouldn't be consulted. They absolutely should be. The voice of the people is the sovereign master of the political enterprise. But what a leader does is aggregate that voice. Okay, so um, he tries to reel it in there at the end a little bit when he says the voice of the people is the sovereign enterprise of the, however he phrased it, he was trying to say, no, 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 actually the voice of the people is like really important, but a good leader like aggregates that stuff together. So there, he, he went hard one direction, and he was like, eh, maybe that's a little too far, let me try to reel it in a little bit. Um, there's one area where he's like 3% correct, 97% dead wrong. So first let me go to the correct part. Direct democracy on its own, on its own, why is that problematic? Well, it's problematic because if you are in 1963 in Mississippi and you have a direct vote on whether or not black people should be considered equal and they should be considered American citizens, um, the racists would win that vote handily. By the same token, you know, if you vote directly on should women have the right to vote, you, know, you don't have to go back that far for the people who say no to win that vote handily. So direct democracy does have the potential problem of um, the, the tyranny of the majority oppressing the rights of the minority. So that is a real problem with direct democracy, and I don't want to gloss over that. However, the solution to that problem is actually very simple and straightforward. The solution is very clearly enumerated constitutional rights. So in other words, what you say is, look, here are your rights. These are off the table. 
you can't take them away. doesn't matter if 53% of the public says, I don't want that thing. No, like free speech. You know, you don't want people say unpopular things. Maybe 53% of people might want to lock up somebody who makes a claim that offends our sensibilities, but you have a right to free speech so that even if the majority decides it, you shouldn't be locked up for it. Okay. But if you have a constitution, you could take all the issues that should be off the table and genuinely put them off the table so that all you have left to vote on are the issues where you should have a direct say and the majority should get what they want. So let's go through some of what he says. He says, the system is set up to follow the public in an intelligent way. I totally disagree. And I don't know if he's referring to Canada or if he's referring to the U.S. Because he says parliamentary at one point there, which would lead me to believe he means Canada, but... Um, certainly in the U.S., I don't know as much about Canada, but certainly in the U.S., the system is not set up to follow the public in an intelligent way. In fact, we had, what was it, a, a study from Princeton that came out maybe a decade ago now, which found that there's like no correlation whatsoever between what the people want and the laws we end up getting. There's a, a direct correlation though between what corporations and the wealthy want and the policies we end up getting. So the system is not set up to follow the public in an intelligent way. The system is set up in modern-day America to serve the donor class, to serve the ruling class to have corporate rule in the country or oligarchy in the country. That's how the system is functionally set up. That's the effective result of the system that we've set up. He says, representative democracy is a way of listening to the people in a way that's measured and thoughtful. Well, in theory, yeah, but again, in practice, I just described how that is, is indeed not the case. Then he goes off the deep end and says, well, idiot, idiot opinion polls are replacing that. I don't know why a guy who is so insistent on, like, the sovereignty of the individual and like an individual person is really complex and interesting and thoughtful. These are things I've heard him say a thousand times over. Oh, if you're a psychologist and you're listening to somebody, they're fascinating, so fascinating you can't stand it. Why doesn't he have that same respect for the collective? If the collective is just a gathering together of a giant group of individuals and you agree that the individuals are fascinating and complex and thoughtful and nuanced, then why with the collective do you, are you just hand wave it away and say, these are idiot opinion polls that came to this conclusion. No, I think opinion polls are actually really important. Now, you can bias it by wording things a certain way, but that doesn't mean you get to hand wave away the entire enterprise when a lot of the polls that are done are not too biased, and they're very straightforward, and people have clear thoughts on it. I think that matters. I think that means something. He says it's effectively pandering to the mob to have direct democracy or, quote, rule by impulse. I would argue the exact opposite is true. You know what rule by impulse is? Rule by impulse is having politicians make our decisions. When these politicians are in the pocket of... Chevron and ExxonMobil and Goldman Sachs and the military industrial complex, companies like Lockheed Martin and Honeywell and Boeing. That's rule by impulse. You have these like adult children who are colossally corrupt, who just do the bidding of their donors and they're, they're doing it whether consciously or subconsciously because they want to get rewarded. They want to win their next campaign. So they want to fill those campaign coffers, or when they leave Washington, they want to get a lobbyist gig for a million dollars a year to sit on their ass all day. So that's rule by impulse. That's rule by impulse. And then the part where probably the worst claim he makes is like effectively, look, you got to rely on the experts and you got to rely on the intellectuals. Oh, really? How has that worked out for us so far to rely on the experts and the intellectuals? It was the experts and the intellectuals who got us into an illegal war, an offensive and illegal war that killed minimum 200,000 innocent civilians in Iraq. It was the experts and the intellectuals that brought us torture. It was the experts and the intellectuals that decided so-called free trade deals are wonderful, even though they decimated the American working class and outsourced the jobs for pennies on the dollar. It was a race to the bottom. 
it was the experts who said, tax cuts for the wealthy are great. Deregulation of the marketplace is great, even though that deregulation led to giant market crashes. It was the intellectuals and the experts who were the problem. They were the problem. Because you could be an expert and an intellectual, but you're well-versed in an ideology that is simply incorrect in the sense that it's power-serving against the needs of the people. So you serve power, you serve the status quo, you serve business as usual against the will of the people. You could be super hyper-educated and intellectual and be wrong, and be wrong. So, look, that claim from Jordan Peterson is an elitist claim. That is elitism. we got to rely on the experts and the intellectuals. Actually, I submit to you, they are more of the problem. They are more of the problem. It's not average Joe and Jane working class person who's just trying to get by and pay the bills and do well by their family. They're not the problem. They're the victims. And they're much, I'd rather pick a random person off the street to represent me than anybody who's in Congress right now. Why? Because the random person off the street is not totally bought and owned by corporate America. And they don't have their heads up their ass in a totally detached city in D.C., um, and then he, he says, he, he scoffs at the idea, like, well, what are we going to vote on every issue? My response to that is, the constitutional ones, we're not going to vote on those. Your rights are off the table. But outside of the constitutional ones, yes. Yes, we should vote on every issue. We should have a direct democracy. That's why I talk about it all the time. Every time you go vote for president, you should vote on the five biggest issues. There's got to be a process to determine what gets on the ballot. But if the American people got to directly vote on Should we have a $15 minimum wage? We'd have a $15 minimum wage. Should we legalize marijuana? We would have legalized marijuana. Should we end, you know, the war in Iraq? We would have ended the war in Iraq. I I guarantee you, roughly 80% of the time, the correct side, the side that does the most good for the most people, would win if you had direct democracy. Again, constitutional direct democracy. But this idea that you're so dismissive of this system, here's what I guarantee you. I'm not saying direct democracy would be perfect. It wouldn't. But it'd be so much better than what we have right now. Because what we have right now, there's a reason why the approval rating of Congress goes back and forth between 25% at a high and 7% at a low. There's a reason why that's the case. That's as real as a heart attack. And you know what? The people are right. They're correct to feel that way. They know they're not being represented. But... Jordan acts like they are, and you just have experts and intellectuals who, you know, are in a thoughtful and measured way are determining what to do. Wrong. Wrong. That's just totally wrong. Sorry. Completely wrong. So um, don't be so dismissive of a system that I think would objectively be better. I acknowledge that there are some downsides to um, direct democracy. There are. Like I said, if you don't have a constitution with it, it could be a nightmare. The tyranny of the majority could oppress the rights of the minority. That can definitely happen. Sometimes you can get these campaigns that are so ruthless and overwhelming and so well-funded that the correct side of the argument loses because there's just so much funding into the propaganda against it. That can happen, too. We've seen it happen before. But most of the time, the proper side wins and common sense rules. And I trust the common sense of your average Joe and Jane in the country a hell of a lot more than I trust the opinions of some expert intellectual elitist who's been reliably wrong about everything for my entire lifetime. All right, guys, we're done. I love you, baby. I'll talk to you soon. Everybody have a great rest of your day. We got Felix um, from Chapo coming on the show.
uh, coming on Crystal Kyle and Friends this week. Definitely not going to want to miss that. I'll talk to everybody soon. I'm out. Later.